When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for listening. So uh, you, I think if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know that uh, I am a gambler. I love casinos. I, I am a walking contradiction on every level, though. And one of the many levels is that while I love casino gambling and I go to Atlantic City as often as I can, which is not that often these days, uh, one, having no time, two, having no money, but uh, I've also been to casinos in Las Vegas. I've been to casinos in uh, the Catskills. I've been to casinos on cruise ships. I've been to casinos in uh, Pennsylvania. So the reason I am a walking contradiction is because I think it would be an awful idea, capital A, capital I, awful idea to expand gambling in the New York, New York area and in North Jersey, I think it would be terrible for for everybody, really, except arguably the casino owners that get to make a lot of money with the expansion of casino gambling. And I said so when this was first brought about, brought up, maybe what month is it? It's April, about three and a half months ago. And at the time, they were talking about making areas like, that were in the New York area New York City area, full-fledged casinos, not racinos, and it looked like it was going to be Aqueduct, and it looked like it was going to be Yonkers, and who knows? I said maybe it'll be Jake's 58 out on Long Island. I've played there. They have electronic table games. It's not that much of a stretch just to add regular table games, regular slot machines beyond the video lottery tunnel. And Sid Rosenberg, my friend Sid, was um, was listening to me, at the time, and um, I'll take you back in time to what we said at the time. He came over to me and says, you know, I, I was listening to you talk about the casino gambling in New York. Does that mean we could actually see casinos in Manhattan? I said, no. Are you crazy? You think we're going to have casinos in Manhattan? No way. So wh- why not? We should have a casino in Times Square. And I said, Sid, do you think Times Square, you think Midtown Manhattan really needs casinos? It takes forever to get anywhere in Times Square now or anywhere in Midtown if you're driving. You really want to add the additional traffic of casinos? And look, there are economically depressed or economically struggling areas of the state. Manhattan is not one of them. And Manhattan's problems, economically at least, have to do with other issues aside from a lack of casinos. So he's all, okay, all right, so you tell me that's not going to happen. Well, lo and behold, what we appear to be watching in Albany right now is 
another example of me overestimating the intelligence of and the ethics of the people that are in Albany, because even though, in my view, it makes absolutely no sense, one of the major sticking points in the state budget, and yes, I know, yes, I said 24 hours ago, they call it the state budget, but we're not talking taxes and spending here. We're talking an omnibus policy document that is um, that is about 213 people's prescriptions for whatever they think is best for New York. It's actually really more like more like three people's prescriptions for what's best in New York. Because while the three men in a room, it, now two of them are women, very little else. Uh, actually, yeah, two of them are women. Very little else has changed. I'm not convinced that rank-and-file legislators have much of a say in the budget process. If you, I'll call it air quotes, budget process, because it's not a budget process. As I explained yesterday, the budget is an omnibus policy document that they still call the state budget. They shouldn't. So they should just the, the the nickname that legislators and journalists give it, which I think is much more appropriate, is the big ugly, which is what we should call it. So there's trying to stick a Manhattan casino into the big ugly. State lawmakers right now are weighing whether to fast-track a move to allow three new casinos in the New York City area. Three! Three! How about you start with one? Let's start with one and see how it goes. So a Monaco-style casino atop Saks Fifth Avenue across the street from St. Patrick's Cathedral. A gambling den with East River views alongside a popular wedding venue. A hard rock casino in the center of Times Square. Could any of those things happen? Well, the next several days, as the as part of the state budget negotiations, which are already late, by the way, Governor Hochul and legislative leaders may well hash out a deal that could authorize these three casino licenses for the New York City area. A prospect that has sent... The Albany lobbying machine into a frenzy and sparked a creative ferment among real estate developers and casino operators who are eager to strike gold in New York's glass and brick canyon. Seven gambling companies are spending roughly $300,000 a month. $300,000 a month! On a lobbying blitz to push the state to fast-track the timetable for New York's final three casino licenses to influence the decision on where the casinos will be located. Casino interests argue that New York is losing out on tax revenue from New Yorkers gambling in neighboring states by waiting until 2023 to allow casinos downstate as an amendment to the state constitution passed in 2013 Dictate. So now Governor Hochul, who's been endorsed by the Hotel and Gaming Trades Council in her run for a full term, which tells you exactly what her position is, she is pushing to include a provision to expedite these licenses. So they wouldn't even have to wait till 2023. Senate Democrats have also embraced the idea and proposed that operators pay a minimum of a billion dollars for each license, a potential boon. For state coffers, but it remains unclear if the final budget will include a minimum licensing fee. Now, the Democrats who control the assembly, which historically has been more resistant to gambling, did not include 
the acceleration of casino licenses in their initial budget proposal, though they're considering it. Now, I heard Assemblyman Richard Gottfried on uh, New York One with Errol Lewis yesterday. And uh, Assemblyman Richard Gottfried has been in office. This is his last term. He's leaving after this year. He actually, by the way, and Dick Morris has talked about it on this show, he went to Stuyvesant High School with uh, the same year as Gerald Nadler and Dick Morris. Can you believe that? The three of them were all at Stuyvesant at the same time together. But Richard Godfrey was uh, has been representing Manhattan for a half a century. He's reluctant to embrace casinos in Manhattan, but he's not slamming the lid on this. Listen to what he told Errol Lewis. The issue is uh, putting doing legislation that would speed up uh, the licensing of the three remaining casinos under the state constitution that are supposed to be in the in the downstate area. Mm. Part of that is 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 looking to find a location uh, in New York City. And, uh, you know, it, in many people's eyes, the logical place to put a casino uh, would be in in Manhattan. You know, everything goes in Manhattan. It seems. And of course, I I represent Times Square. And one of the proposals is to put a casino, which we are told would be a small casino uh, in Times Square. You know, a a, the the proposed developer of it says it would be small, but very high end, very expensive. So it would not be, you know, masses of of, of people coming, but a a very upper crust casino. uh, population. Uh, we'll see. You know, my general feeling, and I've felt this way for, for as long as I can remember, is that I generally don't like casinos and would not want to see one in Manhattan. I think it would, uh, I've always felt it would be, you know, a, a degrading influence on whatever part of the borough it, it was in. Um, now, it's it's conceivable a uh, a casino in Manhattan uh could be structured in a way that would be uh that I that I might well find acceptable uh I'm 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 pretty nervous about the whole topic uh but uh I may well have to get used to being nervous about it cuz you know uh Albany does not do everything exactly the way I want it to uh never has so we'll see we will see indeed unfortunately I think when you're spending $300,000 a month on lobbying, you're showering politicians with campaign contributions in addition to what you're spending on lobbying. You're very likely to get your way, especially if you go about it the way that the pro-gambling interests are going about it. Because it's not just the casino companies that are pushing to expand gambling in the state. You know who else? The influential union representing hotel workers. They've been coordinating with the casino operators, arguing that new casinos in and around New York City. uh, Again, I can't even believe we're talking about a casino in Manhattan, that that means jobs. Now, it does. But the question is, wherever they put it, if they put it, you know, in Times Square, could you put something else there that would be a similar job creator? I think so. Now, the reason I am so opposed 
And I, I, I don't buy for a second that that high-end casino is going to be too expensive for regular players like me to play in. I don't buy it. You know why? Because if there's any truth to this rumor that these casino operators are going to have to fork over a billion dollars to the state, these casino operators are going to have to make that money back somehow. And they're not going to do it with a $100 table minimum for every game. Sorry. It's not going to happen. Additionally, I think this is a disaster. I think this is a disaster. You are going to have people uh, like me who love to gamble, people like Sid Rosenberg who have an addiction to gambling, literally. You're going to see us losing our paycheck every two weeks at this casino. We, If you have to – I'm on 49th Street, right? If I have to pass 43rd Street – and I have to pass a casino on a Friday after I've just gotten paid. What do you think I'm doing? Come on. Of course I'm going to go in there and pay. So it's going to lead. Now, I can afford a couple of weeks in a row of losing most weeks, some weeks not. But there's a lot of people that can't. You are going to see poverty go up in New York City and in the New York City area. And what does that mean? Does that mean the rest of us that don't go broke gambling just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, tough, better luck next time. Uh, we're enjoying the jobs and the nice hard rock building that's in uh, Midtown West. No, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, New York City has a very generous safety net. Things like Medicaid, other welfare programs. There are all sorts of social services that the taxpayers pay for for people that don't have any money. And, yes, that includes people that have lost all their money being problem gamblers. So what this is going to cost us in terms of additional infrastructure, in terms of social welfare spending because of gambling, is going to be very problematic. Very problematic. And I'm not convinced that it's going to be made up by the increased jobs or the increased tax revenue. Sorry. Additionally, I think it hurts other jurisdictions that rely on these casinos as an economic lifeblood. You know, part of the rationale for putting a casino in the Catskills was that the, they needed something in the Catskills. They needed an attraction to get people there. Atlantic City, same thing, very dependent upon the casino revenue. If you make it so that New York City residents don't need to go up to the Catskills or to Bethlehem or to Atlantic City to gamble, they could do it right here in New York City. You're also you're not only hurting New York through more government spending and a much uh, and, and a lot of other problematic family ills. I mean, you think of all the marriages that have been ruined by problem gambling. That's only going to increase. Do that for this perception that this is going to lead to a whole bunch of money for the state coffers. Well, it goes to show if this works, this makes no sense. If this works, it goes to show that if you have $300,000 a month to spend on gambling, uh, another few thousand dollars a week to spend in campaign contributions, and you can do something to get the labor unions on your side. You can get 
anything done in this state and in this city as long as you can do that because it, this makes no sense. It makes no sense for anybody except the people that are going to make a lot of money from this. Uh, and I don't understand why there isn't more widespread opposition to it in New York. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I'm glad Richard Gottfried is out there. And uh, I, I'm uh, hopeful anyway that whatever whatever emerges as the final plan will be better because of Dick Godfrey's input on this. I hope it's small and I hope it's not a traffic nightmare. I hope it doesn't uh, attract an unpleasant element. But I have a lot of concerns about this. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Genting Group. The Malaysian gambling conglomerate that runs the Resorts World slot machine parlor in Queens is now the union's biggest employer. So interwoven is the union with the casino companies that it added gaming. The union added gaming to its name last summer. Used to be just a hotel workers union. In several cases, the union shares lobbyists with the casinos. Uh, I think this is bad news. Uh, I really do. Uh, Tell me what you think. 800-848-WABC. Got an action-packed show uh, for you today in in our continuing series, trying to solve the unsolved mysteries of the universe. We will try to give you an answer to the question, whatever happened to Michael Rockefeller? Michael Rockefeller, the the son of former Governor Nelson Rockefeller. And the uh, obviously the grandson and great grandson of John D. Rockefeller and John D. Rockefeller Sr. He went missing unexpectedly in the early 1960s. Where'd he go? What happened? We're going to explore it with Carl Hoffman, who wrote a, a very controversial book on this in 2014. And with the war in Ukraine still raging, we're going to get into that with Dan Kavalik at uh, 430. He is a, a progressive. But he was one of the few progressives that called out the stupidity of the Russia hoax and said, you know, no, there's no truth to what people are saying. And it's not a fan of Donald Trump, but there's no truth to what people are saying about the Trump campaign colluding with Russia. So I'm curious what his take is on this current situation. Let me say hello to William in central Jersey. Hello, William. Hello, Mr. Morano. Uh, I was uh, I keyed in when you were talking about when they're going to be constructing a uh, those those gambling casinos, possibly in Times Square, and where you uh, have a proclivity, you and Sid Winberg, towards gambling. It's like if you go near the Beehive, you know, there's a very good possibility you're going to get stung. So you stay the hell away from it. I mean, my brother, I go to AC with him, and he wants to have fistfights with me, and I'm like. That's not going to work, you know, so you got to be aware of that. You know what I mean, Frank? Yeah, well, again, I don't think I'm quite at the gambling addict level that that Sid has uh, in that I still gamble. But I was just using myself as an example. I think there's a lot of people that are not able to. They're like moths to a flame. Uh, that uh, ever, whenever they get paid every two weeks, they're going to spend that money uh, in a uh, in a in a gambling parlor if the opportunity exists. Uh, I really do. 
I think it's like crack. It's addictive. I, I mean, once you clearly. pull that lever down, it's like, let's go. It is, it's like the, almost the pitcher releasing the ball. You want to see what the batter is going to do. <laughs> That's a great description, William. It's very true. Anna is here in New York City. Hello, Anna. Hi, Frank. I was an addiction therapist for over 10 years, and there was one addiction I wouldn't go near, and that was gambling. It's intractable. It's a totally different animal. I wouldn't go near it. Well, I don't blame you. I don't blame you, Anna. And I want to hear your take on this proposal for uh, a Manhattan casino. But it's terrible. You know, I I don't uh, you know, I have an obsessive personality, but I wouldn't say I have an addictive personality. But I've had many friends that are addicts, addicts of all types, Uh, alcohol, drugs, uh, sex, gambling, you name it. And from what I can tell, gambling is the worst addiction to have because if you're addicted if you're addicted to drugs in at least in the moment you you stop you're satiated once you get high that day if you're if you're an alcoholic you you're satiated once you're drunk that day when you're gambling you're really never satiated. If you lose, right, you keep right. thinking to yourself, oh, no, no, I, I, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. If you win, you just keep playing and say, OK, right, right. I'm going to win even more. I'm going to win even more. Right. There's unlike all those other addictions that has sort of a topping off moment, at least temporarily, and gives you a chance to collect your breath and have somebody smack some sense into you. Gambling doesn't have that. You'll just keep going, going right. and going. And if you put it right in front of your face, that's removing any barriers, and it's just too tempting to walk right in there. If you have to go upstate, that's a lot better. It is indeed, Anna, at least in my view. Anna, thanks for the call. I appreciate your perspective, and thanks for the work that you've done helping people with addictions. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Al is here in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Good morning, Mr. Anna. You're 100% right. Sad to say we could use the loot. But unfortunately, there's so much going bad in the city. You know what I'm trying to say? Uh, they dedicated strictly to hiring like maybe two or 3,000 more police so we could have like one cop on every train. That might be a nice thing. But everything else, crime, rampant. You know, people getting kicked out. 200,000 people about to be evicted. Everything went away. Everything's going up. Price of eggs, $5. You know, the gas, this and that. It's all outrageous. And in the end, who's going to make money? Those places are designed to... You know, the slots alone pay for everything. All the cable games are going to be pure gravy. You know, it's uh, it's oppressive, it's regressive, and it's taken whatever little loot that people have now. Listen, the four kids today, football, baseball, baseball was always against gambling. Look at them now. Oh, bet from your seat. Bet in the middle of a game. Will it be a home run? Will it be an extra inning? You know what I'm trying to say? It's crazy, crazy. And it's going to all end up in a bad, bad way. Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting. Uh, great points, Al. I'm waiting for them to actually allow people to gamble in between pitches while they're batting. That's what I'm yeah, really we'll waiting for. And guaranteed players will get involved because humans are frail. Oh, know? no doubt. No doubt. And yet Pete Rose is still not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll talk a little bit about baseball in a minute. Those of you that are holding, we'll get to your calls. And uh, speaking of casinos, one of the people that I met in my um, in my visits and my many many trials and tribulations in Atlantic City was the incredible singer Bobby Rydell. Well, we got some sad news about Bobby Rydell. 
yesterday. He passed away at the age of 79. We'll talk about him straight ahead. WABC. That is the great Bobby Rydell singing Kissin' Time. Uh, Bobby Rydell, unfortunately, passing away uh, yesterday at the age of 79, uh, just a couple of weeks before his 80th birthday. According to Variety, the cause of death was pneumonia. This was an incredible, incredible talent, uh, an incredible singer, and a very good actor. Those of you that saw the film Bye Bye Birdie, uh, where he plays Hugo, you know what a skilled actor he was as well. And, uh, you know, I got to meet him a couple times and was really such a great guy. From Philadelphia, born Robert Louis Ritterelli. That's right, he was Italian. Spent a lot of time in Wildwood, um, where, which inspired so many of his songs, including uh, this one and Wildwood Days. Uh, I, last time I had a lengthy interview with Bobby Rydell, and I, I, re, I, I read his autobiography. It's really quite good, I must say. Uh, I think it's called Love on the Rocks. I definitely recommend it. But the last time we spoke, uh, I was so eager to ask him so many different questions about his career because he's had a career that spans about 60 years. I, I mean, think about how difficult that is to get people to still want to hear what you do over the course of six decades. And one uh, story that really intrigued me was when he described meeting another musical legend who's no longer with us, the great Frank Sinatra at the Copacabana. Oh, my God. Uh, That was at the Copacabana. He came in to see a comedian by the name of Joey Lewis. And matter of fact, Sinatra made a movie about Joey Lewis's life called The Joker is Wild. At the end of the show, I'm sitting with my dad and my manager. And at the end of the show, he walks out and I go, oh, my God, because... Carmine, who was one of the waiters, asked me if I wanted to sit with Frank. And I was 19 years old, and I said, oh, my God, no. You know, just put me at my table with my dad and my manager. So he leaves, you know, the, the room, the showroom, and I went, well, that's it. That was my chance, you know, just to say hello and shake his hand. So after the show, my dad, my manager, and myself, we go upstairs to the lounge. And the man who was like the front of the Copa was a man by the name of Jules Padel. And from the kitchen doors up in the lounge comes Sinatra. And I called him Uncle Julie. I said, Uncle Julie, I said, all I want to do is shake his hand. <laughs> and he talked like this. He talked like this. Say, you want to me, Frank? You know, and I said, I'd love to. So anyway, Sinatra sitting at a table with Sammy Kahn, Jimmy Van Hughes, and two marvelous lyricist songwriters. Uh, Richard Conti, fine actor, and one of the greatest baseball players of all time, Joe DiMaggio. 
So we're walking, and Sinatra, excuse me, Jules Fidel hits Sinatra on the shoulder. I almost fainted. And he said, Frank, I want you to meet the kid. And Sinatra stood up with those blue eyes, and he said, how are you doing, Robert? Called me Robert. I said, fine, Mr. Sinatra, how are you? He says, I'm wonderful. He said, would you care to join us? Well, I sat there, and I didn't say two words. You know, I was just dumbstruck. I was awed. I was awed to just to be in the company of not only Mr. Sinatra, but Sammy Khan, Jimmy Van Nuys, and Richard Conti, Joe DiMaggio. And he turns to me, Mr. Sinatra, he says, uh, what do you drink, Robert? I said, Coke. I figured if I said scotch and water, I'd get smacked in the <laughs> face, you know. But he, uh, I took a wonderful, a couple of pictures with him, but one I, I treasure. And it's here in my home. He has his left arm around me. And under his right arm, he has my album, Rydell at the Copa. And he signed it to Bobby. Best always, your friend, Frank Sinatra. My God. I mean, that's pretty neat. Uh, hearing somebody that was such a talent in his own right, uh, getting to meet somebody that was clearly one of his idols. But, you know, he really became famous at such a young age. And you hear about this with so many child stars, whether it's actors, musicians, whatever the case may be. They don't stay grounded. They get uh, addicted to the rush of crowds. They get addicted to drugs in some cases. They become adrenaline junkies. So I asked, how did you do that? How were you able, as a young person, achieving an incredible amount of success at a time before kids these days are even old enough to drink? How did you stay so humble? Well, I think that all stems from family, you know, uh, my mom, my dad, and uh, uh, being Italian, my real name, Robert Louis Ritterelli, uh, there was, uh, you know, a lot of love, warmth, and respect in the house, and if I had any talent within me whatsoever, my dad, God rest his soul, was the first one to see it, he used to take me around to clubs and ask the club owner, is it okay if my son gets up and sings a song and does some impersonations? And I would get up and do that, and like the audience would applaud, and I would go, gee, that's really fantastic. All I have to do is do this and do that, and they do that. What a wonderful feeling. And obviously, whenever I have the opportunity to ask somebody like Bobby Rydell about his craft, I try to ask some selfish questions as well. Now, I'd love to be on the radio in 60 years. First of all, I'm hoping that something like radio exists in 60 years, but it's it's hung on for the last hundred, so hopefully another 60 is not too much to ask. And I'm always curious about these guys who are able to preserve the quality of their voice. Because I saw Bobby Rydell perform only a few years ago. He was singing Volare. He was singing Wild One. And his voice still sounds great. I asked, what's his secret? I honestly don't know, to tell you the truth, Frank. I mean, uh, my voice over the years have has mellowed. It's gotten older. It has uh, more kind of a... A raspy kind of not not very very raspy, but it's a little uh, deeper, yeah, more mature, mm -hmm. a little deeper, a little more mature kind of the sound. And I honestly don't know why. And you know, I love what I'm doing. 
I'll be 77 uh, come this April. And as long as I'm able to get up on stage and my chops are still, you know, good, and I'm singing correctly, I'm singing in tune, I'm not flat, I'm not sharp, and the voice is still there. When that happens, when when, it, 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 when the part in my life ever happens where, you know, that starts going away, then I know, you know, it's time to quit. And he never did. Stayed active until almost the day that he died and was very sharp, very active on social media. Such a shame. A guy that seemed to have so many good years left in him. And now you might ask if he was named uh, Robert Louis Ridarelli, where did he get his name from? Where did Bobby Rydell come from? My dad did come up with the name because when I was in grammar school, you know, we had the nuns, you know, teaching us in grammar school. And they used to call me either Master Ridarelli or Rydelli, you know. So my father actually came up with Rydell. And as far as the press was concerned, years ago, we used to say that when I was 10 years old and I was on the Paul Whiteman TV Teen Club show here in Philadelphia, gave young talent a chance to get a break. So just for publicity purposes, we said that uh, Mr. Whiteman couldn't pronounce Ritarelli, so he named me Rydell, but that's not true. It's my dad. Uh, he, I also asked him about what his opinion of performers today. Really, I mean, I'm you know, I'm just a regular guy, and it never really went to my head. Now, I know there are people in the business today where they do have some problems, but, you know, I wasn't making the kind of money they made when I was, you know, uh, 15, 16, 17 years old. And that's very, very hard to handle, you know, when you're when you're that young. So uh, I kind of feel sorry for, you know, a, a kid like Justin Bieber, you mm. know, yeah. And, you know, I mean, his mom puts him on TV. The kid has tremendous talent. But, you know, when you're that young and you're making that kind of money, it's it's hard to keep your head together. It is indeed. He will be missed. That is for sure. On a brighter note, uh, tomorrow is opening day. And we are going to get a 162-game Major League season in. Now, as a Met fan, you almost know, you know all the sequels to a big action movie or a horror movie that all have the same kind of plot. You know what's going to happen when you're a Met fan. They begin the season with the greatest, the greatest optimism. And then before the season under even starts, there's reasons to be pessimistic. So now... Our two aces, both Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer, are hurt. So, I mean, that's depressing. But we still have a pretty good team. I am hopeful that we can um, that we can really make some headway this year. We still have a good pitching staff and a lot of great position players as well. So, uh, fingers crossed. I invited my old friend Warner Wolf to come on tomorrow to give us a preview of uh, the baseball season and talk about where we are with baseball. We'll see. He uh, he tends to be an early riser. So I'm wondering if we can get him maybe towards the end of the show. If not, I told him, you know, I'd be happy to pre-record him before the show, which is not something that I do with many people. But uh, I would certainly do it for the great Warner Wolf, who uh, both with Curtis and Kuby and with Imus was an integral part of the sports lineup on this station for many, many years. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Janice is in Brooklyn. Hello, Janice. Hi, Frank. 
Uh, I was very saddened to hear about Bobby Rydell. Um, we used to go to Wildwood, and that's where he had his big following down there. He had great hair and a lovely smile. And his songs were great. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say we were friends. I think we had one meal together, but we didn't socialize regularly. But as somebody that got to meet him several times, the guy was just a heck of a nice guy. Incredibly yeah. patient with fans, would take a picture with anybody that wanted, sign autographs for anybody that wanted, and uh, was really just a, a great guy. Yeah, he, that's the impression I got, too. Also, about the casinos, we were talking about this about 10 days ago. Where would they put it? And the only borough we could put it in, we decided, was Brooklyn. Well, it's not going to be in Brooklyn. So it looks well, like... Yeah, no, I already know that, but we inked out Staten Island. We inked out Manhattan. Queens already has one, and they're not going to put it in the Bronx. Yeah, well, no, the Queens has a racino, so they would take that um, that racino at Aqueduct and make it a casino, and then add make the Yonkers racino a casino, and then they would have a casino in Manhattan as well uh, under the proposals that we're talking about. We'll see what happens. I've got my fingers crossed. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Karen is in Rockland County. Hello, Karen. Karen, turn your radio off. I'm going to put you back on hold. Leo is on the Upper East Side. Hello, Leo. Hi, Frank. I just have a question. About 10 years ago, I bought a small light house up in the, in the Catskills near Ellenville by, by Kerhongsen. And at that time, was a big campaign in the whole valley. There is some old resort from like 1900s called Neville, Neville Grande. President Johnson was staying there, and so they're supposed to open casino there. There's like ice ring there, golf, golf course, and uh, swimming pools. Big resorts from beginning of century. I don't know if you heard about it, and then then I never heard about it afterwards. Well, they so did open about anything about it. They did open Resorts World in Monticello. That's the Catskills Casino. Oh, this was big resort by by Ellenville uh, Catskill. I I think Ellenville. You never had Neverly Grande? Yeah, I, 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 it doesn't ring a bell. It doesn't ring a bell, but uh, certainly very, okay. very possible. Okay, I just was wondering if you know anything about it. Because I, I don't, unfortunately. Johnson was staying there, and this is like old, really big resort with a lot of fun. I don't know. I'm not really into gambling. I just uh, somehow, when I was moving in that valley. Uh, oh, yeah. Actually, weekend. I'm looking this up now. Um, the there's a Neville Resort Casino yes. and Spa in 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 Ellenville, which is in Ulster County. Yeah, they open it. No, okay. it's a pro, it's a proposal. That would be, oh, I believe, okay. that would be an Indian casino. I think. Okay. So yeah, okay. so that's the Thank story you. there. Thanks, Leo. Uh, all right, we're going to try again with Karen in Rockland. Hello, Karen. You hear me? Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm better now that your radio's off. Good. Tony Orlando had uh, an interview with Bobby Rydell a few uh, weeks ago, so similar to the uh, interview you just had with him on your program. As far as the uh, casinos, something like that should be on the ballot for people to vote on because they are picking up too many people's vices 
And, you know, just bringing them back in, you know, just just for the money. Well, Karen, that's what makes this so frustrating is that it was on the ballot in 2013. And what um, what the voters voted in 2013 was they didn't any casinos in the New York City area until any licenses until, um, you know, uh, for at least 10 years. But they're trying to fast track this without going to the voters, just having the legislators vote for themselves. Isn't that what they always do? Yeah, well, far too often. Far too often. They just use our taxpayer money, but they forget about who's paying all the deals, you know? Yeah, well, if you had had $300,000 a month to spend in lobbying, I I have a feeling they'd start (laughs) remembering you, too. Oh, and I think Manhattan's a bear, especially Times Square. It's awful. No. I mean, it's it's a, it's a horribly conceived idea from start to bu- start to finish. Is, and a lot of visitors go there, and you know, families. It's a terrible idea. A- 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 Amen, Karen. Thank you. By the way, if you disagree, I'd love to hear you on uh, on that front as well. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. We'll continue with your calls next, and uh, I will tell you about uh, a little bit of a. Uh, conundrum that i dealt with today uh and uh we'll we've got a lot of other stuff we're going to talk about this uh ufo report which which is pretty wild uh at the start of the two o'clock hour we'll get into that and a whole lot more elon musk and twitter how about that that's pretty interesting we'll get into that and uh, a whole lot more including the war in ukraine and the disappearance of michael rockefeller this is the other side of midnight straight ahead Radio 77 WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Singing Wild One, passed away yesterday at the age of 79 and uh, had a lot of good years left to him. He really did. Uh, He's going to be missed by a lot of fans and by a lot of people that knew him and worked with him. Seemed like a great guy, as I said. All right. uh, So I have a lot of folks that I know who are either presently or formerly incarcerated. Right. And because I'm, we have such a monstrous audience in prisons and jails around the region, really around the whole country, I frequently get correspondence from people who are in prison and they want to communicate. And I learn a great deal from them about what's really going on in prisons. And uh, by the way, if you're in prison and you're listening to me, you can reach out to me, especially if you're in the federal system and you're on core links. You can uh, add me to your approved email list, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Be happy to correspond with you. But um, so I get a lot of letters. So a, a an emissary of a prisoner that listens to this show regularly 
reaches out to me not long ago, and she's describing this gentleman's situation. I'm not going to get uh, too much into it right now because maybe we'll have him on the show in the future. But she was describing to me this gentleman's situation. He said he's such a big fan. Would you consider writing a letter to the parole board on his behalf? So, now, my initial reaction, my initial instinct was to not do it. I mean, what, I mean, uh, I don't know this person. It's bad enough I have enough friends that are that, – that people are my friends that then become criminals – do I really need to be uh, writing letters and vouching for people in prison that I don't even know? Of course, the answer is no. So I was all set to say no. And I said, you know what? Let me have a conversation with him. Let me have a conversation with this person and find out how he ended up in prison. Let me look at the case independently and uh, see what he's hoping to do when he gets out of prison. So we have a great conversation. And then it becomes a series of very good conversations. And I got to tell you, I was absolutely blown away by this guy. Absolutely floored. So I agreed to write a letter on this fella's behalf. Now, apparently, when you write to the parole board, the thing that they ask you is to write it on your uh, write it on stationery and then submit it as part of the application to the parole board. Now, here's the thing. Look, I'm on radio, right? We, I don't even have business cards currently. I don't have stationery. Now, maybe that's something I should get down the line, but that's not something I have. So I really didn't know what stationery to put it on. Now, I do have a lot of personal stationery, but it just has my name, my phone number, my address on it. That's pretty much it. And so I know because my mother, every year for my birthday, she gets me she renews my supply of personal stationery because I do a lot of writing and a lot of corresponding with people. So I'm looking all over my office, which is a total mess yesterday. Now they needed this yesterday. It's like, it's already overdue. And I'm looking over at everywhere in my office and I can't find, I typed out a letter and I can't find my letter size stationery. I can only find the card size stationery. I'm looking all over for this, all over. And not only was I annoyed that I couldn't find it, but you ever in this position where you're looking for something or you're looking to accomplish something, sometimes you're just looking to remember something and you just can't find it or you can't accomplish it or you can't remember it. So now I'm looking all over the place as a point of personal satisfaction, aside from wanting to, you know, Add this decision. So I can't find it anywhere. Can't find it anywhere. So then I remembered that I kept that I keep a supply of my old personal stationery here at the radio station. So I apologized to the the folks that were waiting for my letter, but I said uh, I'm going to have to do it when I get to work. So when I get to work, I I take out my old personal stationery, which has my old address. If anyone writes to me there. They're going to be, you know, up the creek without a paddle. So I printed it on there. I scanned it to this this prisoner, and I'm hopeful that it reaches the parole board when he has to go before them today. And I'm hoping that because it's personal rather than my professional stationery, that they don't hold that against him at all. But uh, 
I guess, you know, you know what killed me even more as I'm combing through? See, I've told you this before. I'm a clutterer. I, I can't throw anything away. I have a very difficult time throwing things away. And what was driving me even more crazy, aside from the fact that I'm spending all this time looking through stacks upon stacks of old newspapers, old old documents, old books, and, uh, you know, radios upon radios. What's driving me even more crazy is that it means my wife is right. Because every week she essentially says the same to me. We have to organize your office. We have to organize your office. We have to organize your office. And my rejoinder to her is always, no, no, no. I know it looks messy to you. Just don't go in there. Trust me, I know where everything is. Well, clearly I don't. Because I had almost a full box of stationery, which I can't find. So that was very frustrating to me. So uh, hopefully this fellow gets out of prison and doesn't commit any new crimes. Because then I'll look like uh, quite the jabroni if uh, he goes on to uh, to commit a few crimes. Eight, after after getting out with my recommendation. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Mike is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Mike. Hello, Frank. This is Mike, the crab shooter. i like to tell you a story what happened to me. I met Frank Sinatra. July 9th, 1965, he did a show in the tennis stadium. So my friend says, let's go to Julie's. You'll see Frank Sinatra. I said, okay, we took a ride down there. So now he was in the back with his entourage. When he came out, when he came out, uh, you know, I had a few drinks. He was with three bodyguards. I crashed the bodyguards. If looks could kill, believe me. So Frank says, leave him alone. Leave him alone. I said, Frank, you are the best. I got to have you autograph. He said, I didn't have nothing to write. He said, I, I, get, I put out a dollar bill. And he wrote, to Michael, best wishes, Frank Sinatra. Is, is that the whole story? Well, I mean, that happened then. You know, what else could I say? You know, uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. He didn't, thank God I I lived to see. He had three bodyguards there. Well, I, I, well, it's great that you got to meet him. Did you save the dollar? I'm a gambler. In <laughs> them days, I didn't know how to gamble. I learned how to I learned how to gamble in 1973. Well, don't tell That's me. Wait, way. you gambled away a signed Frank Sinatra dollar? Where to go? I lost it. I'm telling you, I, I lose every day. Oh. Then I learned how to gamble. Then I I knew I was uh, you know almost a professional then, but I learned. Uh well, Mike, that's a shame. I'm sorry you lost that dollar, but I'm glad you got to meet him. I'm glad you had a positive experience. Thank you, Mike. I, I will say that story is a little anticlimactic. I'm waiting for something that uh, Sinatra tried to pick up his girlfriend or something, or uh, you know the bodyguards started you know started smacking him, and Sinatra said, "Hey, don't do that," or uh, Sinatra offered him a job. Weren't you expecting something? I mean, that's a it's a long way to go for a story from 1965. Meantime, I'm watching on one of the TV monitors in here. They had an infomercial for Blend Jet. Which apparently it looks like it just makes smoothies and stuff. I I almost I think this might be my addiction or my I don't know if it's um, an addiction, but it's certainly a compulsion. I feel like I want to go online and order the Blend Jet right now. Now I have a Nutribullet, 
which does exactly the same thing. And that's the only thing that kept me from plunking down whatever this is, $40, on this uh, BlendJet device uh, right now. But uh, these infomercials are really, really something. BJ's in Queens. Hello, BJ. Hey, you know, Frank, it seems like we're going backwards with the pot stores and the hookah bars, and uh, now we're going to have the crappy casinos with the crappy casino people. Maybe we should put them up by the Met with the uh, Gilded Age crowd. Uh, they might uh, go for that. Uh, I, I, I can't believe that people even think that this is a good idea. It's going to destroy the theater district completely. I mean, uh, you know, if you go out to the Midwest or in flyover country, that's all you see for miles is casinos. You know, Gooberville, you know, and they want to bring that to the center, the greatest city on the on the, on the face of the, the planet. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable, BJ, and I'm hoping that it does not come to fruition. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Hey, Frank, just a note on baseball. I remember when the Reds were so good. We live How in River good here. were they? Oh, my gosh. I got to go free because my best friend's sister got straight a tickets how great is that uh, that's not that funny but i mean as far as a punchline for a joke but uh i'm glad i mean uh, you know what uh, hang on to jay's number get hook him up with mike from the bronx because that story about about the reds and him getting free tickets was almost as interesting as getting frank sinatra's autograph on a dollar bill so the two of them can hang out and say, hey, you know what happened to me today? What? Nothing. Oh. Um, 800-489-222. All right. We have action-packed hour. We have Elon Musk and Twitter. We have UFO stuff. We got the metaverse. We got the NFT universe. All sorts of stuff. Uh, still to come, Michael Rockefeller disappeared, never to return. Where did he go? We'll try and find him. And uh, Russia and Ukraine. Until next hour. Help control the pet population and make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. So Elon Musk of uh, SpaceX and Tesla is an interesting guy. He's sort of an eccentric billionaire. And he has a, a big following on Twitter. 
a couple of weeks ago, he tweeted, do you think something along the lines? I'm paraphrasing here. He tweeted something along the lines of, do you think that uh, Twitter, he had a poll. He set up a poll on Twitter, which is a social media site, social networking site. And he said, do you think that Twitter uh, does a good job promoting free speech? Something like that. And then he said, he kind of offered a tease. He said, there will be consequences to your answer. Now, a lot of us assumed at the time that Elon Musk was going to start a competing Twitter. And at the time, I said, well, you know, I really wasn't looking to join another social networking site, but I actually think if Elon Musk starts a social networking site, that it might be decent. It might do all the things that Twitter does well and none of the things that it does poorly. And lo and behold, we learned yesterday that Elon Musk did not start his own social media company. He's found something to keep himself occupied until his first crewed mission to Mars fulfills his prediction and lands on the red planet in 2029. He has purchased a 9.2% share in Twitter for $2.9 billion, making him the social media company's largest shareholder. Now, given his $299 billion fortune, he could easily buy the whole company. It, uh, but And he may do that. But they immediately gave him a seat on the board because, you know, you have to keep your largest shareholder happy. And it looks like we're already seeing some very positive changes. I have been railing since I first joined Twitter and I would spell something stupidly and then want to change it to the proper spelling that there should be an edit button. Elon Musk is in, is, is the largest shareholder for one day now. They're talking about adding an edit button. They're preparing to add an edit button on an experimental phase, first with Twitter Blue, which I have, which I'm all for, and then with other things. Well, that, uh, that's great. Now, the other changes that I'd like to see are less censorship, less shadow banning, less of an emphasis on this algorithm – I like to be able to see the tweets in chronological order. Let me see the tweets in the order they come. Not in an algorithm that you determine what I want to see. And um, I would also, I mean, this goes without saying, I think, but I'd like to see Donald Trump re- restored to Twitter. And I think if, they, if, if Musk restores Trump, maybe uh, someone like Roger Stone who had a big Twitter following, if Trump restore, if Musk restores these people and those folks go back on Twitter, that might do a little something, little, maybe this is me being a little too optimistic, towards healing some of the divides that exist in the country. Because now it seems like if you're a dyed in the wool Trump supporter, you have less and less incentive to stay on Twitter. You join one of these conservative-only – they don't call it that, but you join one of these social media sites that only appeals to conservatives like Rumble or Getter or Trump Social. And if those guys go back on Twitter, then maybe – and maybe, again, this is me being naive 
you have folks on the right and the left start interacting with one another again. And I know a lot of those interactions tend to be kind of hostile, but I'd rather people talk than just live in their own separate bubbles and their own separate silos. So I really have not been pleased with a lot of the changes that Twitter has made over the last few years. And I really like Twitter. Uh, and I like the concept of it, and I like the different things that you can do on it. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, by the way, you can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. But I, I am really hopeful that Elon Musk can make some positive changes. He's got a great track record. He's got a, a track record of accomplishing things. He understands big tech. He understands social media. He does seem like a free speech advocate rather than someone that's a, a great advocate of corporate censorship. So I'm pretty hopeful. Tell me what you think. What are your hopes? What are your fears about uh, Elon Musk becoming Twitter's largest shareholder? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Now, interestingly enough, all sorts of other news regarding the tech world. Virtual reality is getting more powerful every day. And we could soon live, work, and play in these sort of virtual reality headsets, attending conferences, entering these sort of video game universes. They call this the metaverse. Accenture, a consulting firm with more than 700,000 people, onboards its new hires in this virtual universe. An Axios... um, Momentville poll conducted for the What's Next Summit screamed how badly young people want this. Drones, electric cars, smart cities, and crypto are all super popular with young people. Young people are going to get the future they want. Investors go where the kids want to. And right now, cash is pouring in to turning science fiction into reality. So, it's very interesting. Speaking of the metaverse, uh, there was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal, and I told you, and I'll tell you more about it when this uh, happens. Well, uh, a friend of mine is launching a metaverse aspect of New York City, and you'll be able to buy properties in his metaverse. It's interesting. But, uh, and I explained this to my wife, and she kept saying, "Why you don't even play video games. Why would you want to own property in the metaverse? And m- my thinking is, you do it as an investment. You do it as a almost like a speculator. Wall Street Journal had a fascinating article over the weekend. Dolce & Gabbana has created a $300,000 tiara. Sounds expensive, right? $300,000 for a tiara. You can only wear it in the metaverse. You can't even wear it in real life. Dolce & Gabbana, Gucci, Burberry, and other luxury goods companies are seeing all sorts of promise in digital markets where, just as in real life, rarity and exclusivity can translate into higher prices. Digital sharks wearing Burberry, a virtual Gucci purse that cost more than its real-life equivalent, and, as I mentioned, 
that $300,000, that uh, one-of-a-kind Dolce & Gabbana tiara that fetched over $300,000 at auction. You know what I'm going to bid on? I'm actually going to be the first bidder on the house um, from The Godfather in the metaverse, and I'm going to bid on it, and hopefully I'll win it, but I think they're hoping to use my celebrity, or such as it is, to get start a bidding war, and I'm not going over. I don't know. I'll go up to 500 bucks. That's where I'll go. I'm not going beyond that. But the world's biggest luxury brands have been dipping their toes into the world of digital fashion. And the early evidence suggests, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, that there are eager buyers willing to pay premium prices for virtual products. Are you one of these people? Would you ever spend this kind of money on virtual stuff, virtual clothing, virtual jewelry? Upstarts are driving in, too. It's not just bands like uh, uh, brands like Dolce & Gabbana. In February, Cult & Rain, a New York-based sneaker maker, sold over 1,100 pairs of real shoes, each paired with a digital version in the form of an NFT or non-fungible token, and priced at 0.5 Ethereum, which is equivalent to about $1,600. So they sold... 1,100 pairs of virtual shoes for $1,600 each. It's amazing. Apparently, this company is betting on two groups of consumers, sneaker enthusiasts and NFT speculators. Hey, speaking of the NFTs, and I mentioned NFTs yesterday when we did our bagel segment because that fellow that has the bagel map is posting, is selling all of his bagel reviews as NFTs, non-fungible tokens. They're using NFTs as as tickets for stuff now. Sporting events, uh, theater, concerts. And if you ever notice, you go to a, a concert or something, and they have you just look at your phone. Now, I think that's a real bummer. I always save my ticket stubs, even to movies. And now that all these tickets are digital and on your phone, I, I think that takes away some of the – it takes away the nostalgia. Now, I guess you can hold on to that digital ticket stub, but I don't know. It's really not my thing. I, I like the good old-fashioned ticket stub. I got my wife theater tickets for her birthday, and we're going um, in a couple of weeks, and it's all digital. You just hold your phone up. Oh, these are the tickets. I think that's so lame. I like the ticket stub. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on Elon Musk and Twitter. Uh, Everybody embracing virtual reality. These brands uh, selling for big money, digital jewelry and digital clothing in the metaverse or NFTs replacing old-fashioned tickets. 800-848-9222. We have one, two, three, four, five open lines if you want to jump on board. I want to talk about this UFO report and the new revelations in it coming up in just a few minutes. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, two things, Frank. One is, uh, you know, with, with the spelling thing, that's just a form of punishment. You know, they're punishing you, Frank, for it's not true. spelling correctly. It's true. So, so. I guess I just like the idea that they're lessening the punishment of the customer. So that's a great start, like you said, uh, in one day. Now, on the other issue, I believe my question is, is this going to be a fad? 
or is it going to last? Are people going to pay 1500 for virtual sneakers? Or, or is it going to last a, a couple of months, or will it be long-lasting? Well, you might that be, you, be that, that's exactly my question, exactly. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? Um, the first thing ever sold with Bitcoin was about 10 years ago, and it was two Papa John's uh, pizzas, two Papa John's pizza pies. And it sold for something like... Um, a hundred thousand dollars in um in 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 bitcoin oh, no a hundred thousand bitcoin and those pizzas sold for essentially uh, something like four hundred million dollars today so had you bought bitcoin ten years ago instead of using it to buy two pizzas you could have you you could have four hundred million dollars so I mean I'm somebody that that thought a lot of these cryptocurrencies were a a fad also but they've turned out not to be. And that's strange. That fits the word strange. So we're living in a strange world, Frank. Yeah. Uh and uh, let me just update those numbers. In 2010 um in 2010 Laszlo Henyex spent 10,000, not 100,000. 10,000 Bitcoins at a local pizza restaurant called Papa John's to buy himself two pizzas. Back then, his Bitcoins were only worth $40. But since the cryptocurrency wasn't yet a thing in the commercial world, he reached out to Bitcoin talk community and openly traded his Bitcoins to anyone who would buy him these pizzas. Now, considering Bitcoin's value today, which is over $46,000 currently, these two pizzas can be regarded as as the costliest pizzas of all time. I mean, that is amazing when you think about it. So who knows? Could it be a fad? That's why if I can make, um, you know, I'm going to buy all my friends' houses in the metaverse as well. So I'm going to buy all my friends' houses. So if they ever get into this stuff, they're going to have to turn to me and say, hey, you know, can I can I buy my own house back? Well, that's going to cost you. I mean, knowing what a sucker I am, I'll probably just give it to them anyway. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Tom from the Bronx. Uh, I'd just like to say. Yes, uh, yes Frank. I'd like to say that there's too many gambling facilities already. And in other words, upstate, you've got Yonkers, you've got uh, the, at the airport. And there's also a private gambling facility. Do you know that? I think, I don't know whether it's in Pella Manor. But there's a private gambling facility that's been operating for many years. Do you know that? Uh, a, a private gambling facility in Pelham uh, Manor? Uh, yeah. A, uh, there's a private uh, – it's uh, a little above the Bronx. It must be Pelham Manor, I'm thinking. But it's it's been around and it's a it's a private place. I'm not I'm not up on it, Tom. I can't say that I'm up on yeah, it. Yeah, there is some, there is a place like that. I've heard about it, but I I don't exactly know what it is. It's supposed to be very private, and you have to like belong to a club to go in it. Yeah, I I don't know. Clearly, yeah. that's not any club that would have me as a member, Tom. Thank you for the call. Henry's in Manhattan. Hello, Henry. Uh, hi, Frank. How are you? Um, sorry I didn't hear uh, some of your uh, introduction. I was uh, in the bathtub for a while. But 
when you talk about both Bitcoin and NFT, uh, you used a word earlier that that's really very relevant, and that is speculation. Uh, all through uh, uh, financial history, uh, over hundreds of years, you know, maybe back into the, I don't want to guess, but 1500s, there have been things that have been speculated on, whether it's uh, uh, that there'll be uh, gold in a, a right. gold mine or... Right, even uh, tulips, right. And tulips, absolutely. And although we're, we're talking now with uh, Bitcoin of 10 years, um, and and NFTs, uh, I guess, less than two years, maybe even a, just a year and something. Uh, these are absolute speculations in that you're you're talking about intangibly backed, uh, uh, call it a, uh, an asset, uh, an intangible asset um, that's not regulated that has no authority uh, uh, support, and uh, it can collapse totally uh, overnight with uh, uh, a simple uh, uh, law put in place or regulation or a country that, like China uh, that says, we don't want this to be uh, part of the uh, uh framework that our citizens are involved in because uh, although it's pure capitalism, you pay for what you want or you pay how much for how much you want for something. Uh, it's just too, uh, too much reward is the early entrance and the early uh, uh, players who have uh, long ago left that marketplace. All right. Thank you, Henry. Uh, so it sounds like he's not a believer in either NFTs or cryptocurrency. Well, I mean, look, they're using NFT for all this ticket stuff now. So uh, when it comes to NFT artwork and stuff like that, I, I don't know. You know, I can't see myself wanting to spend a few thousand dollars for some NFT artwork. That's That's for sure. That's for sure. But look, Smarter people than me are are into all this stuff, including Elon Musk. He's a big cryptocurrency guy. He's big into Dogecoin, for instance. 800-848-9222. I can tell you, I don't think I own any. Not I don't think. I'm, I'm almost certain that I do not own any uh, cryptocurrency. 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 Nine two two two. We'll continue with your calls and an update on the ever-evolving UFO report. Straight ahead. WABC. This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, seventy-seven WABC. Away from the man 
great Bobby Rydell singing Volare as only he can. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Pamela is in Central Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Um, yeah, this is bringing back memories. You know, fads always exist. And with buying on the metaverse and everything, uh, one of the virtual beliefs that existed in the mid-'70s was Pet Rocks. <laughs> we, uh, invented by Gary Dahl. He was in a bar talking about people's pets, and he invented a pet that you didn't have to care for, a rock in a box. And they had pet rock food and everything. It was a, And people bought it and made him a millionaire. Uh, I mean, my only regret is that I didn't think of something like that. I mean, that's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, really, making a million on on. Air. <laughs> that is something. Thanks, Pamela. Sal's in Manhattan. Hello, Sal. Sal. Not Sal. Al. Oh, Al. I'm sorry. We got Molly. Okay. So you're having a pretty good show tonight, Frank. But as far as the gambling thing goes, I believe that GA needs to gonna they're gonna have to find bigger spaces. Because it's going to create an epidemic. Everybody that breaks up with their girlfriends or the girls break up with their boyfriends, they're going to be depressed. Oh, let's go gamble. We'll look for another. Right, right. And it's disgusting how you have the inmates running the asylum where they get away. Who are they to decide what's good for me? I didn't vote them for that. I didn't vote them in for that. I don't yeah. even think these people voted in. But the fact, I'm, the point that I'm making is, when you have the inmates running the asylum, what's going to happen? It's going to be all kinds of controversy. All kinds of uh, people are going to start stealing. The people are going to start, well, stealing yep. more. And yep. um, as far as your Bitcoin thing goes, see, there's always good deals around. But if you were to get involved in every deal that you heard of, then how much money would you have? Because most of them are scams. I always told my brother, my brother follows that nonsense. And he, uh, he does uh, commodities, whether it be wheat or coin or gold or this. And I tell him, Nick, listen to me. I'd rather take my money and put it on a crap table because at least I see, at least I see who's taking my money when I finally lose. <laughs> with this. I see the hand grabbing the money. When you invested in these other things, come on. I, you don't know who's buying. That's true, Al. That's true. Um, now, I do want to give some credit to the, the newspaper The Sun. The Pentagon has released 1,574 pages of, for lack of a better description, real-life X-Files related to its secretive UFO program after a four-year battle. The Sun Online first requested a copy of all files reports or video files related to the uh, Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, on December 18th, 2017. 2017! ATIP was this program that was funded by Senator um, Harry Reid that uh, investigated all this stuff. And apparently there's some very substantial stuff here. I haven't gone through all these pages, so I'm really just reliant upon the reporting from The Sun. And we're going to try and get some experts on to break this down in the coming days. But um, they filed 
a Freedom of Information Act request just days after this program was made public. So after more than four years, the Defense Intelligence Agency released more than these more than 1,500 documents. It includes government commissioned scientific reports and letters to the Pentagon regarding the UFO program. This haul also includes reports into the research on the, are you ready for this? Biological effects of UFO sightings on humans. So the Pentagon, lest anyone think they don't take this stuff seriously, they did substantial research on the biological effects of UFO sightings on humans. And they set out categorizations for paranormal experiences and studies into science fiction-style technology. So the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, said some portions of the documents must be withheld in part due to privacy and confidentiality concerns. Okay. Maybe someone was abducted and they don't want it on the front page of the newspaper. Okay. But the agency added that the DIA has not withheld any reasonably segregable non-exempt portions of the record. So if that's true, that's certainly a positive development. The bombshell Freedom of Information Hall includes reports on the DIA's research into the biological effects of UFO sightings on humans. This includes, you ready for this? Burns, heart problems, sleep disturbances, even bizarre occurrences such as, quote, apparent abduction and unaccounted for pregnancy. That's a quote. The report noted that often these injuries are related to electromagnetic radiation and it links them to energy-related propulsion systems. And the report, which was prepared for the DIA, warns that such objects may be a threat to United States interests. Humans have been found to have been injured from exposures to anomalous vehicles, especially airborne and when in close proximity. The report added, um, the report said it had 42 cases from medical files and 300 similar unpublished cases where humans had been injured after these anomalous encounters. ATIP was a secretive Pentagon program that ran between 2007 and 2012 to study UFOs, supposedly ended in 2012. And it was outed by former intelligence officer turned whistleblower Luis Elizondo, who headed this program. Bombshell videos of these UFO sightings, like the one I talked about yesterday, they were also published at the time that ATIP became public. Remember that front page story in the New York Times? And this phenomenon has stepped from the fringes of late-night radio shows into a serious national security concern. Barack Obama has talked about it. Bill Clinton has talked about it. George Bush has talked about it. Uh, Donald Trump has talked about it. One fascinating document included in this report sets out how to categorize anomalous behavior uh, with encounters with ghosts, yetis, spirits, elves, and other mythical entities classified as AN3. 
Seeing a UFO with aliens on board, that's classified as CE3. So uh, these documents are pretty interesting. So it looks like the government, at least based on what's being reported in these 1,500 documents, was taking this stuff pretty seriously. Some of these documents also include letters from Harry Reid, who asks for the project to be classified as top secret, and documents about contractors. It shows how a contract was awarded to Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies for $12 million, notably the only contractor to bid for the work to study advanced aerospace weapon threats from the present out to 40 years in the future. Isn't that interesting? Only one. In one letter from Harry Reid in 2009, Harry Reid describes how the program has already identified several highly sensitive, unconventional aerospace technologies which required extraordinary protection. You know, that's the thing is I get the sense that a lot of politicians are reluctant to make this an issue. This is starting to change with uh, Gillibrand. She's made it an issue. Marco Rubio has made it an issue. Um, Lindsey Graham has made it an issue. But I get the sense that some politicians are a little bit gun shy because they don't want to be seen as appealing to the crackpot crowd. But Harry Reid and the fact that he kept going and getting elected, it shows that you can rise to the top echelons of government while making this an issue. Now, I know Harry Reid didn't necessarily make this a big issue until he left office. But he still, as these documents reveal, it still was an issue and something that he was very active in. Now, the most salacious aspect of this is these unwanted pregnancies. The fact that witnesses alleged that these entities, UAPs, UFOs, extraterrestrials, whatever, had sexual encounters with humans and even left one woman pregnant. Now, that's pretty wild. Um, Is it possible that there's some other explanation? Sure. Sure. But the fact that the Pentagon took this UFO-induced pregnancy seriously, and obviously they don't reveal the woman's identity, I think shows that this is a very real issue. I'm going to link um, to this on my Facebook page if you want to read this article. It's uh, Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. It's uh, Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O Fan. Give it a read. Uh, Let me know what you think. You can comment on Facebook or you're welcome to give me a call. Uh, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Joe is in Ron Kunkama. What's on your mind, Joe? You were talking about the metaverse. Um, my son, Game Frank, for over, um, he's, he's going to be 11. So since he's been two years old, uh, three years old, um, called Minecraft. And every year, he, uh, people buy him gift cards. And one day I said to him, I said, Joe, listen, I want to see what this is all about. And Frank, he, you build your own homes. They have farms. 
and uh, he plays with his friends. It's an interactive game, and they have their own like it's their own universe where they he's got a mansion, he's got like I said a farm, he's got all this stuff, and he had this one friend that they were like peanut butter and jelly. They're always together, and they got into such a fight because they built the house together. And, um, you know, you got to buy coins and stuff to buy the materials and stuff. And I guess my son invested more money than this other kid, and they wanted to sell it. And they got into such a fight that they don't talk anymore. You're kidding. And, uh, oh, it's hilarious. They were always going to birthday parties. They actually ran into his father at a uh, fundraiser over the weekend, and he told my wife, what happened? And we couldn't. We were laughing hysterical. But you got to see. You got to check it out. Uh, it's called Minecraft. Yeah, I, I've heard of Minecraft. I know it's a, a game, and I know it's popular. But I, I've never played it. I don't really know anything about it. Do the so does the these structures that are created in Minecraft? And I when I was when I was much younger, I used to play Sim City. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, you could create yeah. these uh, virtual cities. But in Minecraft, is that are the entities created there? The houses and so forth. Is that considered the metaverse? I it's, it's I guess it's Minecraft verse. I, I gotcha. I okay. Like, well, have it. a great night, Frank. Great show. God, thank you, Joe. Eric's in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, Frank. Um, about the UFO thing. Now, I hate to be the one to quote um, X Files. Well, first of all, it, in a way, they're they're pretending it's an issue to pretend there's an issue. Like you remember uh, Majestic Twelve and Operation Blue Book? It's in the, it's it's kind of a way of pretending you're taking it seriously. I mean, they do, but it's to avoid talking about something else, which is a story for another day. Like, what if the conspiracy is to convince us of of it so completely that we question nothing? Um, here's the X Files. They, they used they they during World War One they projected crosses over the trenches and visions of the Virgin Mary, the Germans, to scare people. Now, see when when the enemy sees one of our recon planes, they open fire. But if they see a you know, a spaceship from another galaxy, they hesitate. Now, there's a lot to be, there's a lot of room to move there strategically. You know, why don't, let's get an, let's get a UFO. They'll hesitate. The enemy will hesitate, you know. And, uh, you know, they, they could be, we can experiment on the public. We can do this. We can do that to them. All that can be explained by, you know, experimental aircraft, radiation, all that stuff. So oh, I'm just well, saying don't, yeah. don't, you know, you never know. There's also, you know, we're, we're supposedly in collusion with these things, you know, so... <laughs> It's uh, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. Uh, well, that's yeah, for sure, Eric. You know, the the operative part of what you said is you never know, right? I mean, you never uh, know. You never uh, know. You one never of the know. things that the government has shown a predilection towards is keeping the public in the dark. <laughs> so they're questioning, yes, they're questioning everything. We never know. Keep it all balanced, you know. Yeah, that that is for sure, Eric. Thanks for the call. Appreciate right, it. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. That's eight hundred eight four eight. Nine two two two. I know I'm going to regret this, but uh, what the heck? Let me say hello uh, to Joseph in the Bronx. Hello, Joseph. Ah, missed his opportunity. Missed his opportunity. Hey, you know, I got a text message. I'm a Star Trek fan, as you know, as I've mentioned before, and um. You know, I've been really enjoying the latest series of Picard. So I got a an SMS text message from my brother Alexander today, who's a Star Trek fan. And he texted my dad and my brother Nick when we all like Star Trek. And all 
I saw this when I woke up in the afternoon, and uh, Alex just says, call this number, 323-634-5667. Now, my father, who's very difficult to impress, you ask him how any restaurant is, it's always the same answer. Shrugs his shoulders and says, oh, it's okay. You ask him how he liked any movie, eh, it's not bad. That's his modus operandi. That's his review of everything. So he responded before, this was all while I was asleep, he said, cool. So I'm thinking, if that's something that impressed my dad, then that's pretty interesting. So so I called this number, and you can too. Again, the number is 323-634-5667, and, and this is what I heard. Hello, you have reached the Q Continuum. We are unable to get to the phone right now because we are busy living in a plane of existence your feeble mortal minds cannot possibly comprehend. Furthermore, it's pointless to leave a message because we, of course, already knew that you would call and we simply do not care. Have a nice day. <laughs> I thought that was so cool. Goodbye. Uh- for people that don't know, uh, that is the actor John Delancey, who plays the character of Q, first started on Star Trek The Next Generation, but then he also was on Deep Space Nine, he was on Star Trek Voyager, and uh, he was on, uh, now he's on Picard, and he's great on Picard, and um, basically the Q continuum is this, this uh race of godlike immortal beings and i guess to add to publicity for the show or something i don't know how alexander found that number they created this hotline where you could call the q continuum and you hear john delancey as q greeting you as if you've really called the q continuum i thought that was a lot of fun i got a big kick out of that and if you're a star trek fan or know someone that is i guess you will too uh you can you can Call that number. Uh, I'll give it again if you want, if you care to do it. It's 323-634-5667. I thought it was pretty clever. Richie is in the Bronx. This is not Congressman Richie Torres, is it? No, it isn't. Ah, well, that's our loss, I guess. Yes, I guess so. (laughs) About UFOs, um, if our science, our physics, and our astronomy is reasonably correct, it's probably impossible that we have ever been visited or ever will be visited by people from another world. Because you have to ask yourself, where would they come from? We know for certain there's no intelligent life in our solar system. If there are worlds between solar systems, between stars, there certainly is no life on any of those worlds. That means that any visitors would have to come from a world uh, that's that's part of another star's system. And the closest star to us is four and a half light years away. That means if you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you four and a half years to get here. And um, the energy required to accelerate a spacecraft um, to the speed of light is practically infinite. So it is 
just it is impossible that we could ever be visited or we could ever visit any intelligent life on any other world. Yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily buy that, Richie. First of all, I'm not saying these these UAPs are extraterrestrials. Um, I'm saying we don't know what they are. And I think that is really the appropriate place. And thank you for the call and the science lesson. I I think that's really how the question should be formulated, right? We know these craft are out there. We have we have seen the video. We've seen photos. I posted one on Facebook yesterday of a naval warship from just last year being chased by two of them. So the question is not are they here? Yes, they're here. The question is what are they? Are they something from our own government that somehow the navy doesn't know about? Is it something from a foreign government? If so, we'd better panic. Is it something, as some people have theorized, developed by defense contractors, reverse engineered through alien technology? Maybe. Is it something from other dimensions? Maybe. Is it something that's coming out of the ocean? Maybe. So I'm not pretending I know. We don't know. But. There is a lot of questions about this. And to me, the question is not, do they exist? It's what are they? Because clearly they do exist. Right? Doesn't that make sense? Uh, 800-848-WABC if you have a different view. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. You can also find me on uh, Twitter at Frank Morano, that's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And we're on Instagram at Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. Wilfred is in Newark. Hello, Wilfred. Hello. Hey, the guy was talking, giving you all the things about impossible to travel at that speed. He doesn't realize, you know, inventions, you find out different ways to do things. But besides that, you know, there's uh, hundreds of billions of stars in the in the Milky Way galaxy. But there's millions of galaxies. People don't realize that. Yeah, and you know what I always say when people say things are impossible, Wilford, is I came across about five years ago a, a history and an astronomy book from the late 1940s. And in that book, it says, and this was state-of-the-art at the time, in that right. book, it says... Of course, travel to the moon is impossible. That's what it said. That's what was being printed in textbooks in 1940s because the the totality of under our understanding of human science at the time was that it was impossible. Now, is it possible that things could change, that some sort of technology that we don't yet understand could enable travel between um, uh, another another uh, solar system? I think that's very possible. You watch Star Trek, don't you? Right. And, uh, and again, um, and the interview that I played on the best of the other side of midnight, not last Saturday, but the previous Saturday. Actually, it started out replaying this Saturday as well. And thanks for the call, Wilford. Michael Sala, Dr. Michael Sala, said in that interview on this show that Star Trek came about because Gene Roddenberry was fed information by the son of Admiral Stevens, 
who was one of the creators and one of the producers of The Outer Limits. And Gene Roddenberry used to hang out on the set of The Outer Limits. And he believes, Dr. Sala does, that this was an attempt by the government to kind of acclimate the public to certain things that would be coming down the pipeline in the future. It's one of the reasons that you saw uh, technology that's very similar on Star Trek come to real life. Look at uh, Skype or Zoom meetings. Uh, look at um, iPads. There's all sorts of the, the communicator, which looks a lot like a flip phone. There's all sorts of things that were technology in the world of Star Trek that then became real-life technology. Now, what people have always said is that whoever invented that stuff was inspired by Star Trek. Now, if that's the case, maybe it is. That's pretty neat in and of itself. But you have to at least open your mind to the possibility of something else. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your call straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Well done, Matt Blaze. Um, What's on your mind? Pure Energy by the Information Society. Features Leonard Nimoy there. A terrific, terrific song. Uh, Well done. And for those of us that are Star Trek fans, it always holds a special place in our hearts. Now, it's no secret. I have have many, many character flaws. I, I... you know, if you've ever listened to any of the Get At Frank hours that we do, uh, then then you know uh, some of the things that I do wrong on a regular basis. Uh, I think uh, I've been called both strident and tedious, which gave birth to the term of tedient, uh, which I got quite a kick out of. Now, um, that being said, one of my most one of my most dangerous char- character flaws, I think, is I have, and I've talked about this before, a very difficult time saying no to anybody, to anybody. And that puts me, I can't tell you how often this puts me in a tough spot because I end up getting committed to doing all these things or uh, agreeing to certain things that I don't necessarily want to do just because there's something in my brain which makes it difficult for me to say no to people. And um, and then I'll say no and I'll say no and I'll say no. People then will keep trying. Hey, uh, can, we have, uh, can we have lunch this week? No, sorry. Can we have dinner this week? No, sorry, I can't do it. Well, maybe next week. And the next week comes around and then I eventually throw in the towel when these people keep asking and asking and asking and asking. Um, And so one such thing was um, 
you know, I got invited to this uh, event on um, Friday. It was a, a Billy Joel concert. And the, the person that invited us is very generous, private box seats and everything uh, with a, an open bar. And I'm not really drinking anyway, so that doesn't have a lot of appeal to me. But my wife was a big Billy Joel fan, so I figured she'd really like it. So, now, I hate going to concerts. I don't like concerts at all. It's just, it's not my thing at all. So I'm thinking, all right, I, I can do a good deed for my wife. She's a Billy Joel fan. I can say yes to this person that keeps asking me to socialize with them, and I, I'll do a, a two-for-good deed. Now, my wife starts hearing some stories about how crazy this other person is, and she she says, no, nah, I don't think I want to be friends with that person. Let's not go. And she told me this a week or two ago. And now I never broke it off with the person that invited us. One, because I can't handle these confrontations. And two, because I was hoping my wife might change her mind. So I tried again with my wife uh, a day or two ago. And she was just no no movement on her at all. I said, just go enjoy the concert. You're a Billy Joel fan. She's saying you don't even like Billy Joel. I said, I know, but you do. Let's let's go. And she said, no, I don't want to look like I'm using this person and act like I'm trying to be friends with them when I'm not. Which is fair. That's one of the many things that I that I love about her. She doesn't want to mislead anybody. So I uh, I told the person that invited us that we couldn't go. She was uh, very disappointed. But uh, this happens to me all the time, all of the time. And I was listening to Bill O'Reilly uh, the other day, and I think it was one of those short form commentaries that he does either in the morning show or around noon. And essentially, he says he lives his life by the philosophy of you have to do what you say. And my friend King Henry tried to impart this upon me when I was a young person or around 17 years old. And O'Reilly was going on and on. He says, you have to do what you say you're going to do. If you say you're going to call somebody for lunch, you have to call them. And that's obviously the least of it. And it really reminded me. Hearing that was very sobering because it really reminded me of how often I say things like, I'll get back to you tomorrow, and then I don't end up doing it. And that has got to be by far my worst quality. And Joe Franklin, my hero and mentor, Joe Franklin, had the same thing. Couldn't say no to anybody. And so Joe would pick up the phone all day long. His phone would be ringing all day long in his office, two, three hundred, four hundred phone calls a day. And People would ask him for this. Can I come on your radio show? Can I come on your TV show? Can I do this? Can I do that? And he would always give them the runaround. Call me Thursday at 3 p.m. Call me Monday at 9 a.m. Very important that you call me Wednesday between 5 and 6 p.m. And I asked Joe about this. And I said, what do you do when they call again? And he said, I tell them to call back another time. And eventually they stop. And he's written about this in, in one of his books. And it was very interesting. But that's it's obvious it's a very stressful way to live. So I, I um, have very little free time. And yet people keep asking for me to do things. So uh, I feel bad always saying no. And, and that I really got to get around that. Rush Limbaugh used to have a guy that did that. Kit Carson was his name. And Rush would tell Kit Carson. 
your your job is to say no to everybody. Anybody asks you if I can do anything, be anywhere, do anything, just tell them no. And then um then then come ask me after you've already told them no. Because if the answer is then yes, it's very easy to tell them yes after you've already said no. But if uh, somebody tells them yes first, then it becomes tough. So that's really what I don't have. I need somebody to be my designated no-keeper. Uh, that fellow Jonathan emailed me yesterday asking one of my assistants to look up prescription drug uh, information. Maybe I can have one of our many assistants here just be my designated no person. Uh, Dr. No, we'll call them. Uh, but first, I guess we'll have to hire some assistants. We'll see how that goes. So um, so that was what was weighing on my mind today. And uh, we'll see how that... I, I, I guess the only thing is to just do it cold turkey. Just decide, say no to everything, and don't commit to anything that you don't want to do. Um, I'll give it a shot. Until next hour, keep asking questions. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, very excited about baseball starting tomorrow. Looking forward to that. Um, there was one story that's gotten a lot of attention. Albert Pujols, who I believe is starting his 22nd straight opening day tomorrow, is which is close to a record. I think the record is 23, Pete Rose. But Albert Pujols announced that he and his wife, Deirdre, are getting a divorce after being married for over two decades. Now, here's what's interesting. Deirdre Pujols announced that she was undergoing brain surgery last week for a tumor first discovered last fall. The surgery was on the same day that Pujol, that Albert Pujols made his spring training debut with the St. Louis Cardinals. So understand what happened. So this Albert Pujols divorced his wife right after, days after, she had brain surgery for cancer. Um. It's interesting. I don't know what goes on in the Pujols marriage or anybody's marriage except maybe my own. I'll emphasize the maybe. But if you're married to someone or even if you're dating someone, 
and it's not going well, and you know you need to make a change, be that a divorce or a breakup or a separation, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they have a serious health issue. Look, I, I don't know that it gets more serious brain tumor that requires surgical removal. I don't know if it was malignant or what the story was there. Does it cause you to stay in that marriage a little bit longer? I think so. I mean, I think the example that a lot of us can relate to in the world of pop culture is that Seinfeld episode where Elaine is dating that older gentleman, Owen, and she's about to break up with him. All of a sudden, he has a stroke and he's partially paralyzed sort of debilitated, and now Elaine is in the position of taking care of this boyfriend and feeding him and dressing him and everything that she was about to break up with. But she feels bad leaving him, even though she was about to do that anyway when she thought that he was healthy. And, you know, in my own case, I had a girlfriend, and we were very seriously involved for a while, but, um, you know, it was very clear that it was just not going to work out. Our, our arguments had become much more frequent. It was clear that we had different ideas and wanted different things out of life. But she was experiencing a series of health issues. Um, there was a thought, you know, she had, there was thinking that she might have fibromyalgia or lupus. Uh, Whatever. She had all these unexplained health issues and she had a lot of inflammation in her body and she was always going to the doctor. So I felt like a real cad, you know, breaking up with her when she had all these doctor's appointments that I was tasked with taking her to. So reading this Albert Pujols situation, I'm curious if any of you have been in this situation where you're about to break up with someone and you end up staying with them until after they get over a health hurdle? Or does at times a health hurdle actually serve to aid in the deterioration of a relationship? Does it push folks farther apart? Heaven knows in the case of John Edwards... When his wife had a very serious form of cancer and she was dying, John Edwards was banging everything that moved. Something tells me he would have done that irrespective of his wife's health condition. But, um, you know, again, I don't want to sit in judgment of Albert Pujols and his wife Deirdre at all. But the sports agent that represents Albert Pujols released a statement. If you want to comment on this, I'd really love to hear your perspective. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Albert Poulos released this statement. I've been asked a lot of questions over the past few days regarding what's been going on at home. And sadly, after 22 years of marriage, I've made the decision to file for divorce from my wife, my wife Deirdre. I realize this is not the most opportune time with opening day approaching and other family events that have recently taken place. These situations are never easy and isn't something that just happened overnight. As a devout Christian, this is an outcome that I never wanted to see happen. 
For many long days and nights, I prayed, asking the Lord for his guidance. I'm thankful for the five beautiful children that we brought into this world and remain committed to raising them in a thoughtful in in a loving and safe environment. I ask that you please respect our privacy and the privacy of our five children during this time. Deirdre Pujols has not spoken out uh, at all yet about the divorce. Curious how you handle that. You're about to break up with someone, and all of a sudden they have a serious medical issue. What do you do? How do you handle that? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Mike is calling from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. How you doing, Frank? Pool horse is a bum for what he's doing. And people say, you know, oh, you know, they weren't getting along with it. He has kids with them. And don't you think the kids are worried about their mother? And shouldn't he be there for his kids? Hey, I have an ex-wife, okay? When her mother died, I was there. When her father died, I was there. When they were sick. You know, I was there, even though we're, ex, we're exes, because of my kids. That's their grandmother. And that's their mother. And for, uh, I mean, just shows you how some, some of these guys in sports are. If his record is, is more important than his kids, he's a bum. Plain well, and simple. Now, well, let me ask you this, Mike. What if he stayed longer than he otherwise would have? What if they were going to call it quits a year ago, but he stayed in the marriage until she got through this this cancer surgery. No, you don't have to stay in the marriage, but he should be there and not playing baseball. Ah, I see. In St. Louis, I you see. Understand? I see. I got he, you, Mike. You know, they're not getting. Okay, you know, st- stuff happens, but he's still a family with her, no matter what. And that's the way. That, when we have Christmas parties, my wife now invites my ex-wife. You, you know what I mean? You're it's, kidding, really? You know, it's still, yeah, it's still family. Oh, that's you that's know, and wonderful. I and I didn't and I didn't go through a, an easy divorce. Believe me. You oh, know I, what I, mean? I believe you. I believe you, Mike. You thank, know, you thank. know what happened, Frank? Yeah. You know what happened? You know, I found out that she was bisexual. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Every time I wanted sex, I had to buy her something. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, Mike, uh, uh, wait, wait. That's material that's way too good for the callers on this show. That's outstanding. Bye-bye. Take care. 800-848-9222. Charlotte commenting in the Facebook group. But if you want to join the Facebook group, uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. We're going to go through the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller coming up in about 20 minutes. Charlotte writes, I work in oncology and it is not uncommon for a spouse to leave a marignosis. In my own family, an uncle left my aunt who had lung and brain cancer. You know who that happened to, and I'm just remembering it now, Laura Ingram. Laura Ingram was engaged to be married, from what I remember. This happened about uh, 17 years ago because she was on the station at the time, and she was always very friendly whenever I'd see her around here. She had this bad reputation about being mean to people. I never saw that side of her. She was always very polite with me, very kind to me. And when I filled in, and I was a nobody, I would fill in for John Gambling uh, along with Flipper, and uh, she was always very gracious about coming on with us. So I was, I was really like Laura Ingram on a, on a personal level. And um, But anyway, she was engaged to be married. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. And her fiancé could not stick with her. And they broke up while she had breast cancer. 
So I, it does happen. 800-848-WABC. Al is calling from Fort Lauderdale. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. I just wanted to give you a little uh, scenario that I went through. I am a gay male, and uh, my partner, domestic partner, we did not get married, but we did do the domestic partnership. Uh, he was diagnosed with leukemia mm. back in 2000, and we dealt with a bone marrow transplant, and he was having his recovery and crises along the way. And in 2005, um, he wanted to break up because he didn't want my future to be affected by his death. And uh, he died on Christmas Day in 2005. Oh, my. But we were together. So, we were together again before he died. Al, did you and, uh, did you do what he suggested and break up with him? Um, he actually left me. He went back to he had a condo in Miami, and he went back to his condo in Miami. And I gave uh, him about an hour before I went down to Miami and insisted that I would stay with him through everything. And uh, he agreed, and we continued our relationship in a positive way until his death. Well, that's very nice. It's great that you were there for him. I'm sorry uh, for your loss. Sounds like he was a pretty special guy. He was. He uh, he was... Um, Everybody's angel. He worked at the uh, Mercy Hospital in Coconut Grove as a social worker. Anytime anyone had AIDS and couldn't pay for their utilities or they needed a special bed or whatever. And it wasn't necessarily all gay patients. There were elderly patients that had AIDS. And he was just everybody's angel. And uh, he was... Uh, very sadly missed. So what insight do you have about this discussion now in terms of how to handle if your if the relationship was going to end anyway and all of a sudden the, the per, one of the people in the relationship gets a terminal illness or a serious uh, health ailment? How do you deal with that? I don't uh, – I'm, I'm not sure I could really answer that, Frank. I never – my uh, love for my partner never stopped, and uh, and uh, I don't believe that his love for my future and my presence ever stopped. He was thinking of me when he did what he did, and uh, I I don't know what else to say about it, Frank. I'm sorry. Well, how did you end up there in uh, Florida? I'm single. <laughs> oh, why did I move to Florida? Yeah. Oh, I did this many years ago, 1979. Um, it was the first gay experience I had when I was on vacation. And I thought, hey, let me go. No, so I've, I, I've heard um, Florida is great for gay experiences. But you still well, listen to New York I work, radio I stations. I in Montreal, and uh, 
I uh, had uh, a great experience at McGill University working there, and uh, but uh, I wanted to go to Florida, and I packed up my MG, put my bike on the back, and said goodbye to my parents, and moved to Fort Lauderdale, and uh, had uh, worked for the government here in Fort Lauderdale for many years. All right. Well, continued good luck, Al. Thank you for sharing uh, such a, an intimate story. I hope you'll call again. Thank you very much, Frank. 800-848-9222. Speaking of Florida, let us go to Tony in Florida. Hello, Tony. How are you doing today, Frank? Well, I think I'm doing reasonably well. That's good. Before before I tell you what I want to tell you, I wanted to say that guy you were talking about earlier that um, you wrote a letter so that he could get out of prison? Yes. That was so kind of you. Yeah, I'm just hoping he doesn't go on a killing spree after he gets out. Well, I hope so, too. But that's just the nicest thing I ever heard anybody do for another person, especially someone they didn't know. Well, you know, um, it's easy with me because I will say yes to anybody that asks me anything. Can I have some money? (laughs) If I had any, you'd be welcome to it, Tony. Okay. Uh, what I wanted to tell you is, I'm from originally Ohio, and every spring, my parents would take the family down here for um, Easter weekend, a week. And when I was 23, I was dating a guy in Cleveland, but came down with my parents anyway, and ended up hooking up with the park ranger here, who I'd known since I was four, and he was 18. And although the guy that I was dating in Ohio was the nicest guy in the world, I mean, super nice, she loved me more than I loved him. And so we decided, Warren and I, to get married. So when I went back to Ohio, this is the news I had. The news he had is he just had a vasectomy and found out he had cancer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... We both exchanged the news. Neither one of us, was our news was not good for the other person. And I decided to go ahead and move down here and get married because we weren't living together. We had our separate houses. We didn't have a future. And uh, so I came down here and, and, and got married. And today is our 40th wedding anniversary. Well, happy anniversary. Thank you. And the the guy was dating from Ohio. We stayed in touch for, for probably 20 years. Uh, I haven't spoken to him for a long time, but I know he's well. Um, he beat the cancer. And uh, like I said, we're, we're, we kept in touch for a long time. And after being married for 40 years, I know I made the right decision. Well, that's great. I'm happy that it worked out uh, for you. And, you know, look, sometimes that's how life works. Uh, circumstances, in spite of our best efforts, lead you in one direction or another. Thank you, Tony. Al's in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, hey, Frank. So I'm going to comment on your no problem. My what? Oh, my no problem. Al, were you on already when we thought you were Sal? Yes. You were. That's what I thought. Okay. I don't know how you... you I'm drawing to you now. I see, I see. Here's the thing. No, there's an art to the word no. You're a craft player. So betting wrong is like saying no, and betting right is like saying yes. So now, you'll never miss 
a big role if your first bet is always no, wrong. If the guy hits the number, then you go to right. You change your mind. So now the art of no to me is there's three levels. There's, oh, can we go to the movies tonight? No. Then there's, oh, can you take me to dinner and to a movie or a, or a show? Absolutely not. And then the final one, the most definitive no is, oh, could you lend me money? Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you, Al. I'll talk to you in 20 minutes at the rate we're going. Hell no. Adrian is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Adrian. Hey, um, about the uh, what do you do if, you know, the relationship's going south and someone gets sick? For me, it would depend on, like, uh, I mean, God forbid this ever happened, but, like, if it was... Uh, you know, my husband or something, and God forbid he got seriously sick. And if if I was the one that had been dissatisfied with the marriage and then he gets diagnosed, I would keep my mouth shut and stay by him. You, you can't. I, well, I, I would too. I would too. I mean, you can't. How do you? How do you do? Uh, you, you'd be thinking about. I mean, you'd feel guilty constantly, and also it's just a lousy thing. Anyone that's that's known someone that's had a serious illness. They have enough on their plate. Then you're going to walk out on them and just, like, just put the nail in the coffin? No, no. you got to suck it up. Just keep your mouth shut, suck it up, pretend, do whatever you got to do, but just stay by them and help them get through Even it. Even if you were planning to leave already? Yeah, and it's funny because I've talked to a lot of guys, including someone in my family, who said, oh, it wouldn't make a difference. If he was planning on leaving, they'd leave anyways. They don't care. And I said... But, you know, a lot of people say that, but if they were actually in the situation, maybe they wouldn't actually Yeah, you remember, I don't know if you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, Adrian, but there was this one season where uh, Larry David is, I think, dating uh, Vivica A. Fox or Vanessa Williams. I think it's Vivica A. Fox. And, um, and she comes down with cancer, and he was done with her. Uh, he didn't want any part of it, but, but he couldn't break up with her. He wanted her to break up with him. Uh, which uh, which ultimately she she did, but um, you know that's that's the thing. It's, I I would feel very guilty um, breaking up with someone who had a serious health issue. I think that would be really really tough. That could push them over the top. You know, that could push them. You know, you could actually be encouraging their death in a way. Yeah. Their mind oh no. Isn't no doubt. It. No doubt about it. Uh, thank you, Adrian. 800-848-WABC. Paul on Staten Island. Paul, I've gotten a number of messages for you, uh, all of which say get back to work. <laughs> yeah, my cousin's a card, man. Uh, I, I wanted to bring in on this a little bit, Frank. Listen, I'm with my wife. Um, God, I'm with her 22 years. I think we're married. It's for 17. I have two girls with her. And believe me, there's times I want to run for the hills, and I've thought about it. But God forbid she ever got sick like that, it's imp- it's imp- it would be impossible. Number one, what would my daughters think of me? You know, you got to think of that. Especially, it, it changes once you're married and you have kids. I think it changes everything. It's different than just being a boyfriend or girlfriend, and you know, you really don't have anything else. Then I can see maybe, but once you're married and you have time vested in. You know everything about that person. It's it's more to it. There's no possible way in the world I'd be able to. 
I think that changes everything. Well, look, we don't know what was going on in the Pujols relationship, but let's say she was cheating on him like crazy. Let's say she had three boyfriends and he couldn't deal with that level of infidelity anymore. And uh, he said, I, you know, I can't be married to a woman that's not faithful to me. And he was all set to leave. And then he gets the word that she's got brain cancer. What do you do then? Do you still say, uh, you know, I- I'm sorry that you've been cheating on me, but you have brain cancer. I have to stay with you now. No, cheating's different. All I right, so uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. We don't yeah, know. Yeah. We but, don't know the circumstances here. Yeah, well, that's a different story. But I mean, if if everything's normal, I guess, and I, I won't be able to do. It. But cheating, I'm a big. I, I, that's a big no no with me. Well, again, when you you say if everything yeah. is normal, usually a marriage yeah. of 22 years doesn't end, as is the case of the Pujols, especially when you have five children, uh, because yeah. everything's normal. Clearly, something. Uh, broke down along the way uh, in their marriage. The question is, did Albert Pujols stick around to shepherd his wife through this period? Or was this uh, this brain tumor kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and caused him to leave, as that commenter in the Facebook group indicated? Thank you, Paul. 800-848-WABC. It's 800-848-9222. Big Julie is in Brooklyn. Hello, Big Julie. Hey, Frankie, how are you tonight? Hey, listen, Frank. I said, I've been with uh, my wife for 30 years. she got a bad case of MS. She's crippled. I'm up every night listening to your radio, taking care of her. And let me tell you something. When somebody gets sick like that, it's heavy on somebody. But I've learned one thing. When somebody gets sick like that, you learn to love them all over differently because they're not the same people that are sick that's not the woman who can clean or do the things she's supposed to do as a wife but you learn to love them all over differently and that's what i have done no i've been very critical of um willard mitt romney but he talked about something similar with his wife and she having a very serious health ailment and he had to learn a new dimension to their relationship. And I always gave him a lot of credit for that as critical of him as I am politically. But um, I think, you know, it's a little different than the question that I'm asking. My question is, what if you were already poised to break up and then one of the people in the relationship got a a degenerative disease of some sort that's a little bit of a different scenario than the one that you're than the one that you're talking about 800-848-9222 that's 800-848-WABC tom is at the jersey shore where in the jersey shore are you tom well i live uh, right next to red bank uh monmouth county monmouth county okay uh, where in monmouth county is it monmouth beach wow you are up on your stuff no that's right. in, uh little silver you know oh, where you are Okay. Well, it's nice over there. Damn nice. So what's on your mind, Tom? I can't believe you're talking about this stuff. These private things uh, are private. No one knows what goes on. Um, uh, I've been one, uh, through one or two of these situations myself, but as long as everybody's dogging everybody, um, uh, what about the former Speaker of the House? Right, Newt Gingrich. Yeah, he, it's a, yeah. yeah, it's another one. Absolutely. You know, you just don't know what's going on. Well, that's exactly but right. You have, uh, you have such a great show. 
this bullshit stuff, uh, it's beneath you. Uh, Well, it's beneath you. I completely disagree, Tom, and here's why. Um, One, I'm not taking a shot at Albert Pujols or anything like that. Um, By the way, Tom, did you use profanity there? Uh, No, it was not. Okay. Um, But um, I'm not taking a shot at Albert Pujols at all. I, I, I said you don't know what goes on in someone's relationship. But if people can hear, people are in this situation right now or may find themselves in a situation right now, and then a caller calls in and explains exactly what they did right and what they did wrong when this same thing happened to them, then it can, at a time when people are feeling powerless, at a time when people are feeling lonely, it can help them figure out how they're going to deal with a tough situation. I'm not taking a shot at Albert Pujols or Newt Gingrich or anybody. I'm saying, you know, you don't know what goes on in someone's relationship, and I'm posing the question, what do you do if you are going to split up from someone and all of a sudden they get a life-threatening illness? I don't think that's uh, out of uh, bounds at all, Tom. I'm not saying out of bounds. I'm not saying that at all. But here's what I'll say about Albert. Um, years ago, when he was playing with the Cardinals, uh, when he was a stud with the Cardinals, uh, they were starting to call him El Hombre, the man. The man. You a baseball fan? Yes. There's only one man in Cardinals life. Stan, the man, usual. <laughs> right. And he, he cut that off immediately. So I, I, I'm not sticking up for her or him. I'm sticking up for the relationship that they have. What do they have? Five kids? Right. That's the important thing. And that's what you got to go through when you got to go through it. No, you know, uh, if you want to make, if you want to make um, God laugh. Uh, right. Plan. plan. Sure. Sure. All right. Thank hey, you, Tom. You know, Thank you. We're going to uh, chat with, um, with with Carl Hoffman in just a bit about uh, the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. And Dan Kavalik joining me in the 4 o'clock hour to talk Russia and Ukraine. We'll explore whatever happened to Michael Rockefeller. Straight ahead. WABC. Data privacy, hacking, ransomware, and data theft have become devastating problems for businesses and individuals. Globex Data has the solution. Switzerland has the world's strictest data privacy laws, and Globex Data's Swiss-hosted secure application, spelled S-E-K-U-R, uses a proprietary technology outside of big tech, which means your data remains private and secure. Globex Data just signed two telecom giants to distribute its secure communication solution to over 400 million people in 30 Latin American and Asian countries. Secure is the solution for messaging and email privacy with no data or phone number mining. Secure users can message non-secure users in full privacy and security using chat by invites. Globex data is now available in the U.S., bringing messaging and email privacy and security to all Americans. This Data Privacy Minute has been brought to you by Globex Data Limited. Stock trading symbol SWISF. Web address GlobexData.com. The proceeding may contain forward-looking statements which may not be realized. 
Folks, coffee just doesn't do it for me. Well, I'll be honest with you. Coffee does do it for me, but I've been warned by my ear, nose, and throat doctor that it could contribute to acid reflux, which could give me a sore throat, which is the last thing I need when I'm on the radio. Food was different 60 years ago. It was minimally processed. It was free of pesticides. It was nourishing. And it was healthy for your body. Today, that's not the case. You know I love Life Change Tea. This tea is specifically blended with a powerful herbal proprietary formula that can help give you more energy without caffeine. It tastes great. There's no fillers, no GMOs. It's a mild cleanse and a daily detox that will cleanse you. Their slogan is, the tea that makes you go. You can read the testimonials for yourself at getthetea.com. Use the promo code Frank for free shipping. So go to getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com. Use the promo code Frank. You'll enjoy that same free shipping. Getthetea.com. Promo code Frank. Talk Radio 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents... What you're about to hear is not a news broadcast. Perhaps you can help solve the mystery. This is the Murano Mystery. In our continuing efforts to bring a little insight into questions that people have pondered for years, today we are going to take a look at the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller. And I can't think of a better person to be our Sherpa as we explore the life and death of Michael uh, Michael Rockefeller. We are joined by Carl Hoffman, a former contributing editor of Wired and National Geographic Traveler, and the best-selling author of five books, including Savage Harvest, A Tale of Cannibals, Colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's Tragic Quest for Primitive Art. Carl, thanks so much for joining me at what I know is an inopportune time. <laughs> it's fine. Good morning. Good morning. Now, um, refresh our recollection. There might be some folks listening that can't exactly pinpoint which Rockefeller Michael was. Give us the Reader's Digest version of who Michael Rockefeller was. Michael Rockefeller was the 23-year-old son of Nelson Rockefeller, who at the time that our story takes place in 1961, Nelson was the governor of New York. So uh, big big person. And Michael had just graduated from Harvard uh, that spring and uh, went off to New Guinea uh, working on a film project, and he vanished. Now, um, he went to New Guinea the first time as part of a documentary project? That's correct. He went... uh, there was a man at Harvard named Robert Gardner who was doing these kind of groundbreaking ethnographic films. And he went with Gardner as Gardner's sound man uh, into a place called uh, the Balin Valley in the highlands of uh, what was then Dutch New Guinea. It was the Netherlands' last colony in the east. And he uh, uh, his father, Nelson, had, you know, of course, the Rockefellers were important uh, art collectors. And in uh, the 
1950s, Nelson had opened the, what was then called the Museum of Primitive Art in New York, and it was the first museum in America that dedicated to the art of indigenous people. And Michael, at the age of 19, had been put on the board. And so off Michael, he graduates college, and off he went to uh, the wilds of uh, of uh, Netherlands, New Guinea, into the highlands, and he heard about a group of people on the coast uh, called the Azmat, who were uh, incredible artists and wood carvers primarily. And he took a little uh, break from the filming and went and uh, did a little reconnaissance and uh, was amazed at what he saw. And when filming was over, he went for a longer journey uh, and was traveling on a boat, uh, uh, kind of two handcrafted uh, vessel, two dugout canoes with a kind of Tom Sawyer-ish uh, thatch hut on, on top of them. And they were crossing the mouth of a river with extraordinary uh, tidal out, both tides coming in and the powerful river going out and got into some rough water and overturned. And uh, that's the beginning of the tale. So um, what do we know about what Michael said about why he was so motivated to spend time in uh, Dutch New Guinea with uh, with the the Azmats? What did he say about after that? After that first trip was completed and the documentary was completed, what did he say about why he wanted to go back, if anything? Well, I think he was – we don't have uh, enormous – you know, the Rockefellers didn't give me permission to uh, go into his private uh, uh, letters, unfortunately, but there are a lot of – there's a lot of material, including some journals at the Metropolitan Museum of Art – in the archives. And, uh, you know, Michael was trying to, I think Michael was trying to emulate his father and trying to, you know, he was brought up in a world of art. The family had created the Museum of Modern Art. Sorry about that. We had a, a technical problem there. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, but you no s- worries. The, the family were huge art collectors. That's the world in which Michael had been raised. His father in you know, his father's special thing was uh, was so-called was tri- indigenous tribal art. So Michael, I think, you know, he, he was resisting going into the family business. I mean, I think there was pressure on him to, you know, make something of himself and go, you know, make lots of money like a uh, good Rockefeller should. And he was restless and he wanted to be, uh, you know, Indiana Jones. And I think, you know, every boy wants to impress his father. Sure. And- so he was an adventurer. He had an adventurous spirit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And a love of art. I mean, you know, there's no uh, uh, there was no pretense there. So what do we know about at the time in 1961 when he first disappeared? What did authorities know? What was reported publicly at the time? Well, um he was on this boat and it overturned and they drifted for two and they had there were four of them two local uh health assistants young teenagers uh and a michael and a 34 year old dutch man named renee wassing who was an anthropologist who had been kind of given to 
Michael as a minder by the Dutch government. And uh, the, right immediately, the two boys swam away from the boat to shore, and uh, but they vanished from the perspective of Michael and Renee. They had no idea if they'd reached land or not, and they and no help came. They drifted, and after 24 hours, Michael uh, did the the thing you're never supposed to do when you're in a boating accident. You know, you're always supposed to stay with the boat. He strapped a couple of empty gasoline tanks to his uh, by rope to his waist and got in the very warm water and looked at Renee and said, I think I can make it and swim away. And he was never seen again. Mm. But as it turned out, those two boys did, in fact, uh, make it to land. They just had a long journey to get to Agats, which was the administrative center where they raised, which they finally did raise the alarm. And the Dutch sent out all these patrol planes and uh, they found within 12 hours, they found Renee Wassing and then another a few hours later, they rescued him. But Michael was never seen again. And the huge, you know, Mike um, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor, and Michael's twin sister, Mary, flew to New Guinea uh, immediately and oversaw this massive rest search and rescue effort. Dutch planes, helicopters from Australia, um, you know, there were people on the ground, missionaries who were looking for them, and uh, no trace of him was ever found. And the presumption was that he had just drowned at sea. Um, but, of course, that turned out to be – because there was no trace of him, but, but that turned out not to be the case. Well, um, when did your interest in this case start? Well, I went to uh, – I guess I started traveling shortly, you know, 30 years ago, right out of college and had a wanderlust, you know, a, 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 a big piece of wanderlust striking me. And uh, in the late 80s, my father had a job for a few years in Indonesia and in Jakarta, and he traveled around and I went to visit him, visit him. And during that, right around that time, I, I don't even know how I found out about it, but I watched the movie that Michael had worked on, uh, which is called Dead Birds, and which was this groundbreaking ethnographic film. And, uh, uh, you know, that, that has been super striking to me. And I wanted to go to the place where that movie had taken had happened. But of course, it was just too far, too crazy to get to in my limited time and budget. But that made me aware of Michael. And, you know, years passed, and I kept thinking that there was more to the story. Mm. And, and, you know, in, in the early, in the early 2010s, I started looking into it and realized that, you know, if you Google Michael Rockefeller, there's, you know, a billion literally hits that come up, but they were all based on the same few uh, uh, stray pieces of conjecture and evidence and thought that as a, a, a journalist, that some that it was time for somebody to do a sub, substantive, mm. uh, careful uh, look into it. You know, I knew I could go into archives, and I knew that I could go into Asmat itself and go in in a way that nobody else had had done before. And so that's what I started doing. And uh, you know, what was amazing, like you can't make, you know. This is a story that you can't make up, you know, that the most creative guy in Hollywood couldn't think up. And 
it you know immediately I hired a young researcher in the Netherlands who started going into the Dutch archives and immediately he started finding this you know this stuff and what you know we're talking real documents you know documents from the Catholic Church that said you know this is a cabinet of glass do not touch it you know all of the records of mm. the of the Dutch uh, uh, Navy looking for him you know all the cables from the Dutch government. And and most importantly, we found these reports from two priests in particular, Dutch priests who, missionaries who had been one, a father Van Kessel and the other father Van Pye. And they had both been in Asmat for a couple of years and spoke local languages and were comfortable in the terrain. And uh, after just two weeks after Michael's disappearance, when all the search and rescue equipment and people went home, they began going out into their uh, parishes, into the villages, and immediately they started hearing these rumors that Michael had had, had not drowned or been eaten by crocodiles, but had made it to shore and where he encountered men from one particular village, the village of Ochenep. And he had encountered those men, and he had been killed by them. Wow. And Go ahead. No, no, uh, so I just want to remind folks, we're talking with Carl Hoffman. He's written a book all about this, if you're interested in learning more. It's sort of the definitive research into what happened to Michael Rockefeller. It's called Savage Harvest, A Tale of Cannibals, Colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's Tragic Quest for Primitive Art. So your conclusion, Carl, uh, based on examining all this evidence, was he didn't drown, he didn't get eaten by crocodiles or sharks. He made it to shore and encountered these hostile asthmats. Yes, and it's even more sort of incredible and complex than that. He, you know, he 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 encountered these men from one particular village, the village from Ochnap, and that village had been in a war. It was, it was a big. It was kind of like New York City village. It was a big, powerful village that was slow to change uh, under the pressure, the pacification programs of the Dutch at the time. And in 1957, you know, just a few years prior, there had been this sort of last great battle between villages of Ochnep and Omadisep, two near villages close to each other that had been fighting each other for years. And a Dutch colonial patrol officer named Max Lepre had gone to that village, and I have the documents that, and he, he wrote to show them the power, to teach them the power of the Dutch government, and that power meant burning uh, ceremonial longhouses in Omadisep. And when he arrived to Ochnep, he was it was raining, and he was afraid, and. The skies were pressing in, and uh, he had all these armed guys with him, and, you know, all hell broke loose, and he ended up killing five people. And that set everything up for, for what happened to Michael. But I had all these documents, but, you know, the thing that I really, you know, you don't know, are these things true? Do they reflect the, the reality on the ground? And what I had to do was go there myself. Wow. Now, nobody uh, was ever was never was ever found, I guess, because he was eaten. He was. He was. uh, You know, I mean, it's hard to talk about this without explaining. And and it's too long for 
for this conversation, but hazmat culture was really complex and complicated. And when we're talking about cannibalism, you know, we're not talking about hunger or going to McDonald's sure. to get a burger. We're right. talking about a, 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 a complex sacred ritual uh, that was really about getting the heads. The heads in hazmat culture were important. You know, men were were trees and trees were men and the seeds of trees made new trees and the seeds of men were their heads made new men. And in these initiation rituals for young, uh, for adolescent boys, you know, the head of a, of a, of an enemy was placed between their legs to, to, to fertilize the young man. So there were all these things going on and, I had to go and and try to untangle that, and I went to the village of uh, Ochenep, and I spent two months. I, and I and I well, I went to Asmat, and I spent two months going through Asmat, and it was extremely difficult, a difficult place to be, and I didn't speak the language, and you know, I had to have an interpreter, and the interpreter had an assistant, and we had to go by boat. There are no roads. It's a ten thousand square mile swamp with no roads at all, and and uh, you know, I had this big retinue, and and I got information slowly but surely I mean, one day i was sitting in this village and uh, my interpreter got all excited he, he introduced me to a man and he said this is kokai and kokai you know is a is the 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 head man in, in effect of the village of Ochenep. And, you know, he's an older man. And I said, oh, well, just because I hadn't told my guides and my interpreters that I was looking for Michael Rockefeller. I didn't say anything about that. I just said I wanted to uh, understand Asmat history sure. and culture because I didn't want them to take me on some false trail. Right. So I said, does he remember a uh, a battle, a, a between these two villages, and does he remember this Dutch guy coming in 1957? And he, you know, they start talking, and suddenly Kokai starts telling the story, and he's getting all, uh, uh, you know, using his hands, and I, and he, and he, in, you know, pantomiming air, shooting of arrows, and driving of spears, and I hear these uh, names or these words, I don't speak the language, but I, I understood these names, and they were the same names as the ones in the re in the official reports. And that made my hair stand up. I knew that these events, the events that were in the archives, 50 years old, and that the events and the memories of the of the local people were starting to, were the same and were coinciding. And it's a long tale, but in the end, I had to, I made three trips to this village and I ended up living in the village, learning the, to speak Bahasa Indonesia, the Indonesian language and going alone without all these people uh, and living in the village and living with Kokai and, uh, uh, you know, spending weeks not even asking questions, just just learning to for them to kind of accept me and get used to me and then finally I started asking questions and and you know the answers that they gave me all were very clear and that Michael it turned out had been killed he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and 
and he had been in, in asthmat culture, reciprocation, what we would call revenge was all important. And these five people who had been killed were uh, the most important people in the village, the leaders of the men's houses, and their bodies could not, their souls could not move on to the land beyond the sea until their deaths had been reciprocated. And uh, Michael was a step in that direction. So, but why did they pick Michael to reciprocate uh, the these deaths? Why was it Michael that was on the receiving end of this sort of re- revenge killing? Because he was, in their eyes, he was a Westerner. He was, yeah. in their eyes, a member of the same tribe, you might say, as uh, the as uh, Max Leprey, who had gone and assassinated their own people and leaders. And Michael had just been, you know, there's a lot we're not being able to say here right now. But Michael, but, you know, all of these guys, the Dutch at this time were supremely powerful. They had shipped and guns and airplanes and the azmat had nothing and so when michael's you know earlier forays into the village you know he was always with a group of people other dutch people and anthropologists and guides and you know he was never alone and it the moment he swam up to the men from ochenep he was it was a unique incredible you know rare moment i mean michael was exhausted from swimming some 20 hours he was alone he was vulnerable in a way that no westerner had ever been and at that moment these mm-hmm. men from the different men's houses of uh, Ochenep were 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 in their canoes on the shore, uh, smoking, taking a break, and an argument actually ensued. And uh, but there were some a man named uh, Ajam and Finn and Pep, and they wanted they saw an opportunity in Michael to, in effect, take their take, take their power head. back. Yeah take their well their revenge and power i mean their power was being was being taken from them by the dutch and their religion and their way of life and in this moment they drove the spear into michael and took him away and chopped him up and and ate him and took his power and Carl, attempted to... uh, we're just about out of time but let me just ask this question because i know there have been a number of theories over the years that either he was held captive by the natives for a time or that he even lived among the population for decades after and became an old man in uh, this part of New (laughs) Guinea. Any truth to either of those based on your research? None at all. There's no, uh, you know, it's not that big a region. There were missionaries and Dutch and Dutch and then Indonesian uh, officials in the area for for, for in every town and village uh, and any kind of, uh, you know, Western guy living there would have been known. And, and, and there's no reason. Why would Michael, you know, one of the, the, the heir to one of the greatest fortunes mm. in American history, 
loved by his family, uh, sure. a guy who loved his family. You know, why would he just give that all up yeah. and live in some, you know, muddy village for the rest of his yeah. life now, and never go home? It doesn't that, make sense. That's true. Uh, Carl Hoffman, you've written a number of other interesting books. I hope you can come back in the future and we can chat about some of them. Meantime, if people are interested in hearing more about this, they should check out Savage Harvest, A Tale of Cannibals, Colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's Tragic Quest for Primitive Art. Thanks so much, Carl. You're welcome. Take care. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Hey, folks, admit it. You miss winter. You miss having excuses for eating like you're hibernating. But you can also admit you regret eating like Yogi Bear. Well, we finally made it past winter. Unfortunately, so did your winter weight. Luckily, you still have time to be fit and healthier by this summer since it only takes 40 days to lose 20 to 40 plus pounds with NJ Diet. NJ Diet's contractually guaranteed program starts with bioenergetically personalized supplements based on your saliva, hair, and blood work. Then, NJ Diet uses DNA testing to create your ideal diet plan and workout regimen to help you keep the weight off the rest of your life. NJ Diet is with you every step of the way. You're fully monitored by their certified staff to make sure you're burning fat and not just losing water. You'll also have access to the doctor's personal email and phone number. NJ Diet is committed to you keeping the weight off. Call today, 855-5NJ Diet, or log on to NJDiet.com. Go to NJDiet.com and lose the weight for good today. This is Curtis Sleva. For more than 30 years, when cancer is the issue, my number one source for straight cancer information, guidance, and treatment is Dr. Lederman. Dr. Lederman is cutting edge and the first in America with non-invasive, no-bleeding, highly successful body radio surgery for new and reoccurring cancers. Even if prior chemo, surgery, or radiation didn't work, isn't tolerated or wanted for prostate cancers. He's the one, and I know best from my personal experience, avoiding radical robotic surgery and all of its many complications. He's a prostate cancer body expert, breast, lung, pancreas, liver, kidney, and more. Conveniently located at 38th and Broadway, accepts most insurances, Medicare, Medicaid. Dr. Lederman's exemplary prostate cancer treatment with better results, sexual and urinary life, and avoiding deforming surgery are best for you. Call Dr. Lederman. 212 Choices. That's 212 Choices. Listen to Rudy Giuliani every weekday at 3.55 p.m. for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Mayor's Final Thoughts. Rudy gives his insightful, most candid, and important final thought of the day on topics affecting our community, our nation, and you. The mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Mayor's Final Thoughts. Weekdays at 3.55 p.m. on 77 WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC.
The Great Little Richard. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, you can call in at 800-848-9222. You know, it's interesting. I got a call from a friend of mine yesterday. I had a missed call from him. It's somebody that doesn't usually call, but it's someone I ran into Saturday. And I figured maybe he's calling to uh, follow up on a conversation we had. So I call him back when I wake up. He said, uh, hey, are you looking to buy a Cadillac in New Jersey? I said, no. So there's a guy with the same name as you. He went to my friend's car dealership, and it happened to be a friend that I met as well, but I know my friend Joe better. And um, he lives in Staten Island. And so I told my guy to give him a break, give him a deal. And I said, well, did he do it? He said, yeah. So some other Frank Morano is now riding around in a Cadillac that he got a great deal on because he thought it was me. So let that be a lesson to you. If you're in the market for a new car, tell him your name's Frank Morano and you could play the Frank Morano roulette. You just never know. Until next hour, um, well, your influence counts now and always. So use it. WABC Radio is proud to celebrate 100 years. From October 1st, 1921, to music radio, to talk radio's crown jewel, worldwide and beyond. WABC. WLIRFM Hampton Bays. From around the world to around the block, this is a WABC 77 Second News Update. Good morning, I'm Bob Brown. Some good news if you have student loan payments. The Biden administration plans to freeze federals through August 31st. It's an extension of a moratorium that's allowed millions of Americans to postpone payments during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ivanka Trump testifying yesterday voluntarily before the House panel investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson said that she had been answering investigators' questions on a video teleconference and was not chatty but had been helpful to the probe. New York lawyer Daniela Jampel fired after she crashed a news conference on Monday. This to confront Mayor Adams over the city's mask mandate for kids ages 2 to 4 years old. Tiger Woods intends to compete in this week's Masters tournament. Furthermore, he says he could win following rehab resulting from a car accident. Frank Morano and the other side of midnight up next on 77 WABC. Your forecast from the Ramsey Mazda Weather Center overnight rain lows in the mid-40s. Later today, rain ending early, remaining cloudy with temperatures in the mid-50s. Right now, we have rain outside the 77 WABC Midtown Manhattan Studios. I'm Bob Brown. Remember, the news never stops at WABCradio.com. 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
to go. We are not done yet. Not by any stretch. 800-848-WABC. I will get to your calls uh, in the next few minutes. You know who the one person, if you're on Facebook, that you should follow is? Aside from me, and you could do follow me at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Charlie Sheen. Now, Charlie Sheen is an interesting guy, as we know, from his acting, from some of his off-screen antics, from some of the other things that he's done. But I don't know if this is his doing or if he's got some creative social media consultant or what. But what he does regularly on the Facebook, I know it's now called Meta, but whatever. On the Facebook, he poses these interesting questions which are just such great conversation starters. Uh, I mean, whenever I'm hard up for a talk topic, I should just check Charlie Sheen's Facebook page because there's all these great talk topics on there. The guy's Facebook page is a virtual talk radio producer. So, I mean, he'll pose questions like, what's the worst thing you've ever stepped on with your bare feet? Excuse me. 3,500 comments. Almost all of them interesting. He'll pose questions. Who's the most famous person you've ever spoken to? 5,300 comments. All of them interesting. Well, some of them. By only using food, tell me where you live. There's uh, 7,800 comments. That's what I'm saying. Um, He's got all these great talk topics. And I was looking through his Facebook page a while back, and there was one that really, really struck my fancy. And I found really interesting. And I started talking to my friends about it, and they had some interesting responses. You ready? This is the question that Charlie Sheen, and this is going back, I think, a couple of months. But this is the question that Charlie Sheen asked on Facebook, which I thought was so interesting. And I'm going to ask it to you now. He asked, "Of name the one thing that you always wanted as a child that you bought yourself as an adult. Isn't that is such an interesting question? What is something you always wanted as a kid that you bought for yourself as an adult? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I'm going to give you mine, and I'll read you some of these responses. But that is this morning's question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born... I have awaited a question. What is it? For me, the answer is quite simple. A ping pong table. That is the, I mean, technically, I guess that's not true because my mother bought me that ping pong table as a housewarming gift. But that is the one thing that I always wanted as a child that I bought, that I would have bought myself as an adult. A ping pong table. Other than that, I really... I don't know what – oh, there was one other thing. I remember being at the Jersey Shore in Seaside Heights one time. And I was there with my my father and stepmother. 
And they were not like my mom who would spoil me endlessly. They, you know, would give you gifts for, you know, a, a birthday or a holiday or something, but not just for the sake of buying you something. So we're in these, you know, little shops at the Jersey Shore, and I really wanted a pocket comb. Now, what it was was it was it looked like a switchblade. And you look it looked like the kind of thing where you press a button on this black handle and a knife would pop out. But a knife didn't pop out. A pocket comb popped out. Like a comb. So it was a switchblade, and then instead of a knife popping out, a, a comb would pop out. I thought it was the coolest thing ever as a child. And they didn't want to buy it for me. And apparently the whole way home, I kept harping on this. I don't remember this. I remember not getting it, but I don't remember harping about it the whole way home. Saying, you know, I had a really good time, but I would have had a much better time if I would have gotten that pocket comb. Why? And Why? I went on for a while about this. And that's one thing that I did buy myself as as an adult, maybe about a year or two ago, uh, one of those pocket combs. And I don't think I've used it once because my hair is really not conducive to combing. I don't can't even really use a comb. I can only use a, a hairbrush. But tell me the answer to that question. What's something you always wanted as a child and you bought yourself as an adult? One person says her dog's. Another person says a katana guitar. Another person says um, a little doll called Little Tears. Another person says the Snoopy snow cone machine. Uh, what's yours? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-WABC. Eddie in New Jersey wanted to comment on Michael Rockefeller. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. Hi, Eddie. Um, I... I believe that I, I I do don't believe that Michael Rockefeller actually died because I have information that he actually survived and moved back to the state and lived out his life in New Jersey and I didn't know him personally but I have a friend who was a neighbor of his and he went under a different name and he actually died about two years ago from COVID. What was the assumed identity that he that he lived under? I never had an essay. Um, he it was a big secret, and I'll, I'm not certain of this because he never admitted it to anyone. But his children said that they believed he was uh, formerly Michael Rockefeller, and that was basically the rumor that everyone believed. You know, it was a it was a like, basically an open secret with the people who knew him. Really? Well, I've never heard that. Right so now, I I when I was listening to this interview, the guy made a sound. Like it was he was pretty certain that he died, so it was raising doubts by me. But I grew up thinking that Michael Rockefeller was living in New Jersey. Well, why did you think that is, though? Because this is this is what his kids were saying, and they had they had, they had a bunch of uh, different ways that they that they were able to prove it. But he never publicly admitted this, and he's dead now. So. Well, that's interesting. I'd be curious if there's other any other information about that um, about that theory. If you have any, I'd be very curious. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know much about it. I just know this is what they say. And and I mean, my friend was his neighbor. He knew him, and he said he never spoke about it. But you know. 
Well, that is interesting, Eddie. Uh, Eddie, thank you very much for the call. Hey, was there anything that you ever wanted as a child that uh, you didn't get and then bought yourself as an adult? Well, there were many things that I that I, I wanted. Um, did I ever get them as an adult? Um, trying to think. Well, I actually just, <laughs> it's funny. I, I, for the past like two years, I've been wanting to buy Ted Cruz's book, One Vote Away. Wait, which book? And which book? He, he wrote a book. Who? Called One who? Vote Away. One Vote Away. You're familiar with it? No, who wrote it? Ted Cruz. Senator oh, oh, the senator. Okay. Yeah. And I just bought it last night and I've been wanting to buy this for like about two years. All right. Well, were you a child two years ago? Well, I'm 19, so I guess I was. I guess you were. Yes, I guess you were. All right. Anything. There you go. One vote away. 800-848-WABC. What is something that you always wanted as a child that you never got that you bought yourself as an adult? Uh, One person says a swimming pool. That's interesting. 800-848-9222. Chris is in Goshen. Hello, Chris. Good morning, Frank. Uh, growing up, I always wanted a mini bike, which a mini motorcycle, and of course never got it. Uh, but when I had my own son, I, uh, of course, when he was seven or eight years old, I ran out and uh, got him a, a Kawasaki 110. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to make to make up for it. Yeah. So was there ever, ever anything that you got for yourself that you didn't that you were deprived of as a child? Yeah, it would be the uh, Kawasaki 650 that I ended up uh, getting myself after I bought my son his uh, motorcycle. Did your son like it? Was he appreciative of it, or he didn't uh, He didn't care about it? Well, when he first got on it, um, it happened. I had it, pulled it out of the shed to surprise him, and he was all excited. And uh, we, I started it up, and I explained to him how you get to do and he gets on it, and he drove it right into the back of the shed. Interesting. All right. Well, did he ride it a second time? He is uh, a regular motorcycle rider now. He's 28 years old. Oh. And, uh, he's, he loves motorcycles, and he's very safe and everything. Oh. So uh, I'm glad I did it, and I, uh, it was, that's, that's what I did to make up for my uh, not having that mini bike. Well, that's pretty neat, Chris. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. What's yours? Something that you always wanted as a child, but you didn't get until you were an adult. Mark is in Westchester. Hello, Mark. Yes, hello, sir. It was a Rolex watch. Oh, you wanted that as a child. Interesting. As a child, yeah. It was a status symbol. Uh, I'm 56, so I'm talking when I'm 13, 14 years old. And then when I first started making some money, the first thing I invested in was a $14,000 platinum Rolex back in the 80s. It now goes for about 40 k But I was living at home. I was a young boy making a lot of nightclub money. You don't want to wait online? Give me easy pass. Or, you know, hit the line. So it was my first obsession as a child was a Rolex watch. Mark, let me ask you, did did you keep the watch? Do you still have it today? I am wearing it as we speak. It is my one thing that no matter what happens in my life, I will leave to uh, one of my daughters. I I will never sell it. Well, that's wonderful. That's a great story. See, that's exactly the kind of object... 
uh, or the kind of purchase that I'm looking for is something that you that you had a precocious desire for as a young person bought once you had the money and treasure to this day. I think that's that's great, Mark. Thanks for sharing that. 800-848-WABC. Sherry in Brooklyn, how about you? Yeah, good morning, Frank. Morning. Congratulations on fun. Uh, thank you. I've always wanted to have a piano at home, but my family couldn't afford it. And I've always wanted to have patent shoes. But since you could only have one pair for church, my family wouldn't buy patent because the the nuns would not let us wear patent in church. And did you buy a piano as an adult? My mother did. Oh, she did. Very nice. So, um... Sherry, did you know how to play the piano as a child? No, I didn't. We, we were never exposed. Right. I've always seen it in, in books. So do you know how to play now? Uh, I hit some notes. Well, see, that's so interesting uh, to me. Uh, that is so interesting to me because it's it's very similar to my object. Obviously, a ping pong table is a lot less expensive than a piano. I always liked ping pong, but because I never had a table, I never really got good. So now that I play as an adult, I am at best mediocre. I don't have, I, I, you know, um, you'd think for all the time that I spend playing ping pong, I'd be decent. I'm not because I never really got to play as a child. And I think my whole life could have been different. Had had the I had biggest a biggest grant I could afford. <laughs> uh, Sherry, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Mary's in Wayne. Mary, what's something you wanted as a child but didn't get till you were an adult? Mary, what I uh, what I wanted mostly was a dog. I always wanted to have a puppy. I wanted to have a dog. We never had one. So when I was an adult and I had my own children, I bought a dog for myself and for them. And oh, it was just nice. wonderful, wonderful, what? wonderful. Why didn't your parents want you to have a dog? Well, you know, uh, we lived in a two-family house. Uh, we rented the house, so I don't think the landlord wanted us to have a dog. Uh, one time, I believe it or not, I found a dog and brought it home. And uh, my mother, and <laughs> we didn't know the dog's name, of course, so we called the dog Teddy. And my mother said I could keep it until we found the owner. So one day my neighbor next door called my mother and said, there's an ad in the paper about a lost dog. And it looks, it, it sounds like it's, it's the dog you got. So it had a different name. I can't remember now what the dog's name was. And my mother called, <laughs> called the dog by the name in the newspaper. And that dog came running, running, running. It finally heard its real name. And we had to return it to the owner. Oh, man. Oh, boy. Talk about heartbreak. Mary, thank you. 800-848-WABC. Mike in Hell's Kitchen. Hello. Frank, how you doing? Love the show, man. Thank you. Absolutely love it. Thank you. Um, When I was really young, there was this TV show called Ripcord. And I saw that show as a kid, and I said, I want to buy a parachute. Well, I didn't say I want to buy a parachute. I just wanted a parachute. I really wanted a parachute. But he was like seven or eight years old when that was on. And I never got a parachute. When I got older, I grew up, I bought myself a whole bunch of different parachutes. And what do you do with them? Well, you jump out of airplanes with them. Well, so you use them with that in mind? Well, yeah, you better have it in mind to use a parachute when you jump Well, no, out I didn't know if you just kept them or, or if no, you no, actually... No, no, I, I actively jumped for a number, a number of years and I... Uh, 
oh, I used a parachute. And and but the thing is, when I just heard you bring up this conversation, I was like, what? And I said, wow, ripcord. And you know, it, it's I think it's sure it was on like in the sixties, and it was. Uh, it was so fascinating. It was one of those things that as a kid, you know, growing up, I actually was born, in, uh, grew up in East Harlem in Astoria. And it was such a, it was such a concept of like not even imagining you could walk, it, it, seeing that on, on TV. It was just amazing. Oh, sure. And, I can imagine. And my friend said to me one day, and this, you know, just to, let me name drop if he's still alive and still out there, Pete the Greek. He said, let's go jump. And we went down to a drop zone in Jersey. We made some jumps and, and I, then I just stayed out. I stayed out it for quite a few years and really had a, a lot of fun doing it. I can imagine. It sounds fun. Mike, thanks for sharing that. Tom on Staten Island, what about you? Yes, I, um, when I was younger, I was in a, I used to play the video games, the coin-operated ones. Oh, sure, and like arcade I games. Had an un, I had an unofficial world record at the time because I never went into any tournaments. But anyway, as I got older, I started looking it up, and I found one, and... So I purchased it. It was a game. It was like an offshoot of um, Pac-Man or Miss Pac-Man. It was called Matrix. So, but the way I got the world record, like I said, I would play it. I would get high scores. And one day, me and my cousins were in a store. We were going through books. And it had all the records for uh, all the different video games. So I said, wow, I get that high score with one guy. So when I purchased it, I told the guy that I had the, uh, you know, the record in that. So he goes, no, how'd you do that? And, all. and I said, well... You know, I played this and that. So I said, when I get the record, because I purchased it from him, I'll send it to you. So I, I played the game. I got the record, and I took a picture of it, and I sent it to Cool. Him. Cool. I love so, that. Yeah, That's was, my kind of story. Yeah. And then another thing, when you're talking about ping pong, I've been playing ping pong since I lived in West Brighton in a recreation center. And I used to go over to St. Peter's at night and play. And then even with my job, you know, we had three tournaments. I won the three championships and that. So I, I love that game, too. I still play it, but not as much. But anyway, the Matrix video game, I bought it, and it's, like, it's a cocktail table I bought. So, But it has a 60 in one. So, you know, when my nephews come over, I let them play. Oh, that's fun. That's I fun. off a little bit, you know, with the Matrix, but that was my uh, obsession. Now, that, that's pretty neat. Thank you, Tom. 800-848-WABC. Sean in Park Ridge, how about you? Hey, how's it going? Um, well, uh, being that I grew up here in New Jersey, all my brothers and my father, everybody in my family were New York Giants fans. However, I was the only Pittsburgh Steelers fan. So, How'd you end up a Steelers probably... fan? Uh, when I was, I'm 51, so when I was like 7 or 8, my uh, the Steelers were playing the Cowboys, and I knew nothing about any of it, and my sister said, oh, we're watching the Super Bowl, and she's there like, you know, who do you want? She's kind of egging me on, like, with a bet. And, um, you know, I just picked Steelers out of a whim. And, like, all Steeler or most Steeler fans, anyway, um, they're pretty much diehard. And that's what I became. Um, so I, I suffered with them during the 80s with Bubby Brister and the whole lot. <laughs> and I, I believe me, uh, I know that uh, it's been a long time, a long time coming to get some uh, some winning teams. Good for you, though, Sean. Good for you. Um, eight hundred eight. Well, I guess, you know, um, you know, you know, that's I, I, I don't know if I cut him off prematurely there, uh, but uh, I guess he was saying. That um, he bought Steelers tickets, right? Uh, I'm sorry if I cut him off prematurely. I was just trying to get in some other people before we uh, spoke to Dan Kavalik and before we did the thousand dollar minute. How about you, Joe in the Bronx? Hey, how you doing, Frank? 
yeah, uh, the one thing that I wanted was a full 88-chord keyboard. Um, I recently got myself a Yamaha keyboard, and I love it. Yeah. So, the, you know, the little things that I used to play around with were Casios. They were sort of like toy organs. So uh, this is a professional work. I'm a singer-songwriter, so, yeah. So that's my thing. Well, that's neat. Okay, I'm glad you got that. Howard in Elmhurst, how about you? I, I always dreamed about becoming, I watched the television, I saw Jungle Gym and all these wild programs with places. So I always dreamed about going to exotic places, you know, which were easy to get to. And I finally became a leader for the Appalachian Mountain Club. Oh. And I discovered some of the places that nobody ever knew about. Canyons, caves, and it was such an adventure. I had so much fun, and I attracted more and more people. I can and imagine. I just, and it was really, I mean, some of them were scary, some of the places. Well, give, give us a few examples. Up in the ice caves up in Ellenville, I'd go, there was ice in, the, in April and snow sometimes. Wow. Like over your knees. Wow. And then uh, I discovered these canyons uh, up near in in the New Paul's area that nobody knew about, in the Mohonk area. And did did I, you ever get hurt? Uh, only once, yes, I did. I had to be, I I was going up in a, what they call a touch canyon in the ice cave area, which is in Ellenville. And I, um, there was a, I, you had to gro- grab on whatever you could to get up. And there was a route, but I forgot that some person fell down once. I, I was there when it happened, and he grabbed the root that saved his life. So that root became loose, and I, I dislocated my shoulder, and I had to be let down by rope. Oof, uh, that sounds painful. Uh, look, I guess that's the price you pay for a little adventure, Howard. Uh, what is something that you always wanted as a child that you purchased for yourself as an adult? Kathleen in the East Village, hello. Hi, Frankie. How are you? Um, well, what it is is that when I was young, my parents and neighbors, they used to all sit around the uh, kitchen table and play pinochle like all night. And I would sit there fascinated watching, you know, how they're playing and making. So it's not a thing. It's more like a, but as I grew up, I always had this thing with cards and wanting to play. So then I started playing on the, some of the poker tournaments in Atlantic City and won some of them. And I, I did well with it, you know, and I think that's just, connected me with uh with a thing that i oh that's I'd fun really yeah no that, that, that's fun and thank you kathleen that's great um I, for me you know that same thing was sort of true of craps you know i would go to atlantic city as an underaged person and i would see some of my older friends playing craps and i just would stare at this this game and think, I am never going to understand this game. Never going to understand it. Now, the truth is, once you play it a couple times, it's actually pretty easy to understand. But uh, I said, uh, you know, when I was like 17, 18, and I'd watch my friends play, oh, I'd, I'd love to do that and actually know what I'm talking about. Little did I realize what a curse that would be because of all the money I've lost at craps over the years. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Dan, um, Joe is in Riverhead. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, good morning. Thanks morning. for another great show to Thank distract you. me from this dismal, rainy, otherwise yucky day. Um, I have a few items, actually. When I was a kid, I started out on keyboards, and I saw the Beatles on TV, and I wanted a guitar, and my mother was like, absolutely not. 
So what, be, what, was it because garbage. of the expense or some other reason? No, it, was, it was the neighbors. Mm-hmm. Everything was about the neighbors um, with her. Um, I found one in the garbage and I hid it in the woods and I took it apart and I smuggled it into my bedroom piece by piece. But when I was an adult, I went to Sam Ash and I bought one and I had it sent to the Fender Company, a custom pro shop and had it all redone nice. I used to watch my father fix our own car and he used to use some pretty rickety floor jacks and I always wanted to buy an automotive lift. And a few years ago, I finally purchased one and had it installed oh, in the garage. Oh, really? Now, what does that uh, go yeah. for? Uh, I got a really good deal on it. It cost me about 7000 Okay. And they well, came and they did the install and it's lifetime warranty. They never take a tip from me. I've had some problems since 2014 and they're really great guys out in Farmingdale. Well, that's pretty um, neat. Uh, that's great. I'm glad that worked out for you, Joe. Thank you. Hey, uh, we're going to hopefully get somebody a little closer to being able to afford that car lift in just a minute. Uh, we are going to give the seventh person to call 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC, the seventh person. We're going to give them an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds and if they can do that, they'll win $1,000. So if you want to try and play the $1,000 minute, then be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. WABC. Open up, man. What do you want, man? My girl just caught me. You made her catch you? I don't know how I let this happen. But who? The girl next door, you know? I don't know what to do. So it wasn't you. All right. Ah, the great Shaggy saying it wasn't me. It was not indeed. All right, time for us before we get to Dan Kavalik and learn about what's happening in Russia. It is time for us to give one lucky person an opportunity to win some money. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Now let's meet our contestant, Paul in Lakewood. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Do you live in Lakewood? I work there. You work there. All right. Well, my condolences. I understand uh, just a day ago, the uh, former mayor of Lakewood, Madeline Kane, the first woman mayor of Lakewood, uh, passed away. So I hope you're dealing with that okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm fine. All right. You're going to be okay. 
All right. Um, well, hopefully some of this money can assuage whatever grief you are experiencing. Uh, you know the rules, Paul? Yes. Okay. Timer will start after the first question. I'm going to go through them quickly. Uh, you answer a question right. We're just going to move on to the next one so we can try and get to all of them. Ready to go? Yes. What day comes immediately after Wednesday? Thursday. Who was Barack Obama's vice president? Joe Biden. What cable network does Tucker Carlson tonight air on? Fox. What San Francisco prison is surrounded by water? Oh, um, Alcatraz. The actress who played which Seinfeld character died this week? Um, the mother. All right, we'll uh, take it. We'll take it. That's fine. What annual pro wrestling event took place last weekend? WrestleMania. Which singer's real name is Stephanie Germanata? Uh, Madonna. Oh, no. I thought for sure Lady we Gaga. were. Uh, it was Lady Gaga. I thought for sure we were We were going to have a winner today because uh, even the ones that you weren't necessarily confident in, you were, going, you were answering quickly. Uh, no. Uh, yes, it is Lady Gaga. Madonna's real name is actually Madonna. Madonna Louise Ciccone is her name. I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to give you a, a consolation prize, Paul. If you want one, give Molly your information. And Molly, please give me Paul's information as well. All right. Well, uh, there's been a lot of talk about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. And someone whose perspective I so often enjoy is Dan Kavalik. Uh, Dan Kavalik is uh, a human rights activist, a labor rights lawyer, and an author of, uh, of many books, including The Plot to Scapegoat Russia. And he's kind enough to join us this morning. Hello there, Dan. Frank, so good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I know it's a tough hour. I appreciate you being available this early. Very happy to be with you. Now, uh, Dan, you are you're on the left end of the political spectrum. I'm not going out on a limb by saying that, right? <laughs> no, you're not. Okay. Now, unlike a lot of uh, so, I'm guessing you're not necessarily a fan of Donald Trump, right? Um, no, no, and I'm I'm not, but I'm not a Trump hater either. I see the uh, the good side of him as well. But I didn't vote for him, no. Now, um, one of the things that first um, interested me about you is that even though you are on the leftward end of this political spectrum, during the whole Russiagate probe, even before Mueller had issued his report, you were one of the first people, even though you're not necessarily a fan of Donald Trump, you didn't vote for him, you were one of the first people to come out and say, this is all a hoax, and you wrote the book, the plot to scapegoat Russia. Now, why were you so confident so early on that this whole Russia gate, this whole notion of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, why were you so confident so early on that that was all just fooey? Well, I, I agree with one commentator who say, said that the Russiagate scandal is, was a scandal without any, any allegations. That is to say, even if you believed everything that was true about what was being said, none of it ever amounted to much. Um, you know, basically, there were allegations that uh, someone in Russia hacked the DNC computer, which exposed 
uh, the truth that the Democratic Party had unfairly kneecapped Bernie Sanders uh, during the primary. And by the way, it turned out there was never proof that Russia had had done that. Um, But again, even if you believe that, that didn't seem to be a horribly significant thing. He had claims that um, Russians had some Facebook and Twitter posts that, by the way, weren't even particularly partisan. Um, There was the Steele dossier, which has been utterly debunked, which, again, didn't really show that Russia influenced the election. Uh, So, I mean, the whole point is I none of it smelled right to me that 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 there was any legitimate claim that Russia interfered in the election and certainly not in a way that had any significance. Um, And so it really bothered me that that there was this almost mania, at least among some of the the population uh, of Russia interfering in the election when it seemed to me that the election was won and lost because Hillary Clinton called her own working class base deplorables. Right. right. And, and a number there are a number of other factors uh, that uh, I'm sure you could attribute that uh, that loss to. By the way, what do you think uh, there's been this this probe by Durham, uh, the uh, the independent counsel or the special prosecutor investigating the origins of this Russiagate probe? And one of the Hillary Clinton attorneys, Michael Sussman, is getting ready to go to trial and uh, Durham's trying to get new evidence introduced in that trial. Where do you see all this stuff with Durham ending up, Dan? Well, I think, you know, first of all, what it's what he uh, is being tried for relates to the uh, Steele dossier, which was this dossier, which was supposed to show uh, connections between Russia and Trump. And it had some salacious uh, details in there. Again, it appears that Hillary's team uh, might have actually helped fund the creation of that dossier. And, and uh, there's some issues of whether they properly reported the money, and that appears to be what the investigation's about. And I think, you know, it's going to show, again, that this was all the whole Russiagate scandal was manufactured. Uh, largely by the Clinton campaign, is an alibi for why they lost to Donald Trump. We also heard a lot about uh, two years ago about the story regarding the information on Hunter Biden's laptop being a Russian disinformation campaign. This was a theory uh, signed off on by a lot of leading members of the intelligence community, uh, current and former, and uh, this was something that was never supported by the the evidence. Why do you think so many intelligent, reputable people were willing to believe that this Hunter Biden laptop story was all just a result of Russian disinformation? Well, you know, I wonder if they really did believe that. It seemed to me that there was a consensus that came out. That story came out, I believe, in the summer of, of 2020. And, of course, could have had the chance of derailing Joe Biden's campaign. And I think there was some consensus amongst the intelligence community, who, by the way, were the ones that also pushed the Russiagate scandal for their own reasons. And there was a consensus that they did not want Trump 
to win and and that this could have thrown the election to him. And so they poo pooed um, that whole story, even though we know now that it, it was rock, you know, rock solid in terms of being truthful, uh, that, in fact, Hunter Biden definitely was involved in some conduct regarding Ukraine and China that uh, that was at least uh, questionable, if not unethical, if not illegal. So, um, you know, it seems like uh, the intelligence community, like other uh, institutions in the U.S., uh, is swayed by politics mm. uh, a lot of times. Interesting. Interesting. Now, um, let me ask you about this war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine now. Now, the Shocking news this week, uh, which has a lot of Americans really worked up, is these claims of atrocities in Bukha, atrocities purportedly carried out by Russian soldiers on civilians in Bukha. Uh, what's your take on what we're seeing and the reports of these atrocities taking place in Bukha? Well, I think there's a lot of questions as to whether uh, those reports are correct and, in fact, the Pentagon itself is saying that there needs to be an investigation and they're withholding judgment. Uh, Russia itself has called for an independent investigation and went to the Security Council to do so. And in fact, other and then other uh, countries, I believe the UK uh, was one actually opposed having an independent investigation. So I think there's a lot of questions as to whether that was a real event. And I think we have to ask those questions at this moment. During war, uh, there's a lot of propaganda from both sides, obviously. Um, and I think it's important to withhold judgment. I think there is some reason to believe that that it might have been staged to, um, you know, to pin on the Russians. And again, I think that has to be considered at the same time. Look, during war, there are war crimes. I mean, the war crimes go with any war. I mean, sadly. And so if 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 and again, I my guess is both sides are committing uh, war crimes and there's some evidence of that. Uh, but again, I think we need to withhold uh, judgment. Now, um, speaking of the U.N. Security Council, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, virtually addressed them yesterday. Here's a portion of what he said. If there is no alternative and no option, then the next option would be to solve yourself altogether. And I know that um, you can admit that if there is nothing that you can do besides conversation, we need peace. We, Ukraine, need peace. Europe needs peace. And the world needs peace. So essentially, Zelensky called for removing Russia from the U.N. Security Council. What's your take on that? Well, there's absolutely no base. First of all, there is no way to do that within the U.N. Charter. That is to say, there, these are permanent members. Russia is mm. a permanent member. There's five permanent members of the Security Council. There's nothing within the U.N. Charter that created the Security Council to remove a permanent member. It's never been done. And let's be honest, uh, you know, the U.S. is engaged in aggressive wars against other countries without Security Council authorization in places like Iraq, Yugoslavia. And, of course, in, in Libya, uh, they went way beyond the Security Council authorization and overthrowing Gaddafi. The point is that no one considered throwing the U.S. off. I mean, that is to say, 
I don't see a basis for that, and I don't think it would be correct. Um, the whole point of the UN and the Security Council is to maintain peace and international security, and it gives a certain voice to uh, to different countries. And I, I don't see a basis uh, for changing that now. And again, I, I don't think there's even a legal basis for doing that. Now, speaking of Zelensky, I have been amazed at the extent to which he has become a an international rock star. There was a Pew Research survey uh, that came out this week which showed that Americans, Americans, not Ukrainians, Americans have a 72% approval rating of Zelensky. And it's greater among um, the American people than any other international leader, including Biden, including the uh, chancellor of Germany, including Macron in France. In your view, what's driving this Zelensky mania? Uh, I mean, uh, propaganda is. I mean, Americans take that view because the mainstream is almost uh, in unison on deifying or at least sanctifying uh, this man. I'm not saying he's he's a bad man, although I think he's got a lot of flaws, for one. And there's a great story on the gray zone that Max Blumenthal did on this. He well, Max was on yesterday, did. actually. Oh, yeah. He gave in to um, uh, the neo-Nazi uh, groups there under duress, by the way, not because he necessarily wanted to, but because they pressured him to allow them to continue to have the influence they've had in Ukraine. And I, you know, the other thing is, I think he was put up by the U.S. to provoke Russia to not give in to some of their very reasonable demands about not having Ukraine in NATO, about stopping attacking uh, the Donbass region where these two republics are, which has been happening since 2000. And 14, 14,000 people died in that conflict. And he would give no concessions on that. And I think largely uh, concessions that could have prevented this uh, war. Uh, and I think largely because the U.S. pressured him to do it. And that is to say, I, you know, I'm not sure even how much authority he has in any of this. He seems to me to me to be more or less under the sway of the U.S. And so, I, you know, I don't I don't have a huge amount of respect for him, but again, he, he is a media creation, and so many people in this country are media creations. And of course, the danger is a lot of those people end up uh, falling. I remember one guy in particular named Andrew Cuomo. Yep, yep, no. People, people called themselves Cuomo sexuals, and then within months, the guy was resigning over uh, sexual harassment allegations uh, and the fact that, yeah. My, no, so. my colleague Bernard McGurk uh, pointed that out. Uh, in, he said maybe Zelensky a year from now will be the viewed the same way that Cuomo was after being uh, beatified by the media or Dr. Anthony Fauci, who seems to have the halo removed from his uh, media profile these days. Hey, you know, another one of my colleagues recently may uh, I heard I heard this person say that Russia attacked a democracy. Now, there's no question that Russia attacked Ukraine. But would you characterize Ukraine as a democracy? 
I, I would not. I mean, first of all, the you know the government in 2014 uh, was put in power. The government of Poroshenko, which immediately preceded Zelensky, was put in power through a coup d'état, a non uh, a uh, non extra constitutional coup d'état, and in fact. Um, uh, Poroshenko would would admit that later that it was a coup, uh, which the U.S. had supported, and that was never straightened out. That is to say, then elections followed uh, that elected Zelensky that never undid that coup. So I would say that alone made it undemocratic. But also Zelensky himself has put uh, opposition leaders in jail, journalists in jail. So I would say that it's not a democracy. The news came out uh, last night that uh, the U.S. is going to be sending up to $100 million in additional military aid to Ukraine. Uh, this includes anti-armor systems. This includes uh, Javelin anti-armor systems. This includes all sorts of $100 million worth of military equipment. A lot of people view this as... Uh, America trying to help out a country that is being bullied by a country that has far greater military might. And this is our best way to help keep them alive. What's your take on whether this is a wise move or, or an imprudent move? Well, I think from the point of view of the Ukrainians, it's an imprudent move. I, I think, look, militarily, the Russians have more or less already won this thing. They've destroyed most of uh, Ukraine's capabilities and and a huge amount of their personnel capabilities, you know, meaning their their actual troops. Ukraine cannot win this thing. Uh, Arms being sent in now will merely prolong the war and prolong the suffering of the Ukrainian people. And again, I don't think the U. I'll be honest, I don't think the U.S. cares about Ukraine or the Ukrainians. They are, to me, they clearly want this war to be prolonged in order to uh, weaken Russia in the way that they wanted the Afghan war to do the same to the Soviet Union. This is all about a conflict between Russia and mostly the United States and NATO in part, uh, with Ukraine in the middle being sacrificed. So what's driving this? Uh, Who do you think is the ones that are egging for conflict with Russia, because a lot of people who've been paying attention to this story, they might say, well, look, you know, you know, the United States didn't force Russia to invade its neighbor. They did that on their own. Um, What do you say to that? Number one. And number two, who or what is driving this desire for hostility between the United States and Ukraine? I mean, Russia. Right. Well, first of all, yes, Russia obviously did invade on its own, but I think it saw some very significant security threats to itself, including the fact that, as I mentioned, you've had this eight-year war uh, that Kiev's been uh, launching against their own Russian ethnic population in Ukraine. By the way, those are also Russian citizens. You should understand they're dual citizens. I think that's a holdover from the Soviet Union. So their own citizens are being attacked. And they saw that tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops were being lined up along the Donbass border. Um, They believed, the Russians believed, to attack the Donbass and take back those two breakaway republics. And Russia decided... Again, from their point of view, they had to move in to stop that and to prevent um, 
a huge bloodshed in, in in that region. At least that's their perspective, which at least is a reasonable or or, uh, or understandable position, whether you defend it or not. And the U.S., I think, wanted this conflict, wanted to push them into this. And why? Who's doing it? It's sectors of uh, Washington. Um, there are uh, people in government and in the defense industry whose goal is to destabilize Russia. And they thought this war might do that and the economic sanctions that would inevitably follow. And, of course, the defense industry is making huge profits on this and admit, are admitting that this crisis is good for them. They're always pushing for more war. Sure. And again, I think there's se- sectors in the White House and other parts of the U.S. government doing that. Now, that said, there's others pushing against that. Interestingly, from what I understand from Colonel Douglas McGregor, who was a, a advisor. Sure, to he's, been, he's a regular guest on this show as well. Right. He thinks the Pentagon itself and actually, Joe Biden, to the extent he's able to stand up to anyone, because I do think he is in not the best shape, uh, that those two forces actually don't want a greater conflict uh, with Russia. And that's why the Pentagon is leaking things, saying that, well, you know, actually, Russia's kind of going out of its way to make sure that they don't kill civilians to the extent they can. They said, we don't think they're going to use chemical weapons. And again, they said this week, you know, we're not sure that that massacre that was claimed to have happened actually happened. So you have forces uh, opposing this, but you also have uh, forces who really want to escalate this. Dan, uh, we're going to have to end it there. I appreciate the time this morning. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Frank, always grateful to talk to you. Absolutely. Uh, it's my pleasure. We'll, we'll chat uh, again soon with, uh, with Dan. We'll have a lot of other experts on the Ukraine situation as long as it continues to unfold. Because remember, we were covering this before there was an invasion, right? Uh, we were over this from the very beginning. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. If you want to be heard on any issue for 15 seconds, now is the time. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. WABC, this is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. WABC. side of midnight a big thank you to our owner john katsimatidis and uh our first lady margo katsimatidis as well there is an ad in the new york post today featuring yours truly frank morano and curtis lewa new york's number one nielsen rated news talk shows and it features the other side of midnight monday through friday and the other um the other side of midnight with uh 
The other other side of midnight. <laughs> See, I thought it was a typo. It's just being clever. The other other side of midnight with Curtis Sliwa, Saturday and wow. Sunday, uh, midnight to 6 a.m. If you don't get the New York Post, it's in today's post. I really appreciate the ad. Uh, but if you don't get the post, I just put a picture of it up on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. All right, we'll do a speed round of... The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of faith. Joseph and Yonkers. Frankie and Glendale. Hey, your last call was great. The military industrial complex is doing very well these days. And a shout out to Joey from Unicamacama. Jeff and Suffolk. Frank, that guy sounded like Peppermint Patty. Come on now, get some good guests on here. Peter in Manhattan. Hey, great interview, Frank. I wonder if Reader or Rudy would have the guts to have that guy on like you did. Great interview. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Peter. That slams the lid on things for today. Uh, and uh, the WABC Early News with Deb Valentine is next. Bernie and Sid coming up at 6 a.m. I'll be back at 1 a.m. Frank Moreno, good day.